you know. While you were playing that just now, I had the craziest fantasy that I could rise up, float, right down the end of this coronet, right through here, through these valves, right along this tube, come right up against your lips and give you a kiss. Didn't oh, I didn't want to get spit on me. Drop it. Duncan and both come correct. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of reasonable ages. You know, we're, we, we, we have limits. <laughs> yeah, if there's children listening to this one, don't. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know about that. They're going to learn some stuff. Uh, it's the same reason I advocate taking children to Deadpool. Um... <laughs> Just for the educational merits. Uh, but this is Duncan and Bo Come Correct. This is uh, the final episode of the regular season prior to us doing the uh, very special uh, Duncan and Bo Come Incorrect for episode 13. Ostensibly a tiebreaker episode, should it be needed. Um, but uh, yeah, here it is. We are We are staring down the barrel of the end of this season, Duncan, and... Uh, first, Duncan McLeach, my co-host. I, I feel like everyone knows that by now, but, you know, I, we should introduce you. Oh, thank you very much. It's a, a pleasure to be here as always, Bo. <laughs> how, how very polite. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I would argue this season has been 2.4 times as good as season one. That seems very precise, and so precise that it is almost impossible for me to argue where those numbers have come from. So I will agree, yes. There's science and math involved, that's all you need to know. I just imagine you in front of a whiteboard with lots of numbers and equations and... It's, yeah, it's a real beautiful mind scenario where I just, <laughs> I get lost in the numbers for a minute, and then I snap out of it, I'm like, 2.4, and oh, by the way, conspiracies. <laughs> 9-11 was an inside job. Um, but, <laughs> that's not uh, conspiracy. That's just that's a fact. fact. Yeah. By now, yeah, by now. Everyone um, knows that. Everyone knows that. Yeah. Um, I, I genuinely think that this season, and it's, it's always difficult because like, part of you wants to be humble when you do these sort of things. I genuinely think this season has been incredible. I, I think in terms of the the movies that we've covered, um, of such a monumental increase in quality and that's not to belittle any of the movies that were covered on the previous season but I think what we've done this season um, above all else is really try to find the best movies within the subgenres that we've picked whether that was documentaries or like even early on I've, I've been going back through some of the older ones just trying to recap exactly how things went down but um, kind of fill in the blanks of the knowledge that we have within the films that we've seen um, and covering some like heavy hitting movies um, in this season whether it's Doctor Strangelove or it's The Conversation you know like huge huge movies um, but like coupling them up with movies which you just generally wouldn't it's been surprising how close some of these shows have been considering some of the movies that have been you know pitted against the, the heavyweights are maybe lesser known, but have a surprising charm or quality about them that people just don't get around to see. And I think that's been evident 
pretty much every episode this season. I think some of the favorite, my favorite movies were covered um, in the entire Duncan and Bo Come Correct catalog have been in season two. So I would not disagree with that, uh, especially since I kind of said it first. Um, yeah, I think. I, yeah, I think it's been a tremendous season, and you know, just like uh, season one, uh, except more so. When the the season ends, I have uh, like a, a breadth of knowledge about movies that I, I was not aware of or just hadn't gotten around to seeing. And this this whole show uh, was largely designed so that you and I could watch movies that both of us knew were good and and find movies uh, that we maybe didn't know so much about that are just as good, if not better. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it, it, it's really rewarding, all joking aside, uh, to to do this show because now there are thirteen movie, well, twelve movies and one really crappy one uh, that are <laughs> like now in my library of films that I really enjoy. Like I, I you know, again, I can't believe I never saw the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and man, you know, that was an experience. And I, you know, we'll talk more about. Butterflies and peeing in a, in a little bit, but I enjoyed that quite a bit as well. Um, I thought um, the 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 funny thing as well is that um, obviously Facebook now notifies you of like prominent things that have happened in the previous years. Anything that you posted on, and we are two years to the week that me and you had our first conversation about starting this show. So, like our first proper sit down. Skype recording, right? This is how we see the show going, and to see where it has come in those two years is 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 something quite impressive. I think. I think we've got a, a good core group of listeners who, you know, know their movies, and if they don't know the movie we're talking about, they go and check it out. And it's it's always great to see people come back as well with what their position is. You know what they how they would have voted if they were in our place, which is is good as well. And we've not had really any. Once again, this has been another season where logic will out um, when it comes to you know who wins what um, or what movie was selected. I don't think we, we've still to come across that scenario where the two of us have basically drawn our line in the sand and will not budge. That hasn't happened um, again in this season. I think that's the testament to the, the, the quality of movies, but I think we're very good now at kind of stating the case to the other one to make them, if they're maybe on the fence, make them see something within the movie that will maybe make them acknowledge. And we've done some weird movies on this season. Like, I was thinking about it. Like, probably one of the weirdest movies we've covered on this season was Tangerine, um, which is just a fucking strange movie. And then yeah. I, couldn't help, I couldn't help but think of that while watching the Duke of Burgundy again for completely different reasons. <laughs> so... I, yeah, I I couldn't exactly name why that connection exists, but I I kind of see it. Yeah, I, maybe it's alternate sexuality. Maybe I is think, is yeah. the theme. I think uh, that's I think that's what it is. So, and maybe that's going to be a subgenre next season. Season three, we open with alternate sexuality, <laughs> uh, mostly sheep related. <laughs> the best sheep fucking movie. It's gonna it's gonna start season three. Uh, that, that seems almost inevitable now. <laughs> <laughs> the you know it, speaking of listeners, there uh, I did see uh, a note, and I can't remember who dropped uh, the line now, and I apologize. 
uh, dear listeners, you are you are smart and attractive people. So thank you for listening. But uh, but somebody had said uh, about the uh, the last episode that uh, he felt we got it wrong. That ah. that Harold and Maude is a classic film, and he only could get about thirty minutes into Four Lions. And to that listener, I would say, uh, give it another shot. Um, you know, sometimes I think the the accents used in Four Lions um, are very thick, and they're mm-hmm. hard to get your head around a little bit. Um, but that said, that that movie is very, very, very funny. And uh, I've gone back and watched that uh, since we last spoke, and uh, probably enjoyed it more the second time around, even though it won the episode. Yeah. Um, and then I I burned the copy. And saying Cat Stevens song says I watched it burn, <laughs> but then I liked the movie so much I bought another copy. So who's the real victim? I think the thing is I don't think um, I think on the show we wildly acknowledge that the better movie is definitely Harold and Maude. There's no competition there. Um, but when it comes to the confines of what the show kind of posits on each episode, um, and that wasn't an easy decision. Well. It was an easier decision for me than you, but once again, I think this season's been full of those. I think you know there's there's been certain ones where it's you, you know this is academic, um, but there's been like there's been really cool shows where I, th- I think back to our foreign episode, um, you know, r- right at the, the the very start, and you know. Uh, filling in the blanks of those French movies that neither one of us had seen either side and, you know, when you sit down and discuss them, it's, you know, once you get into the nitty gritty, it's kind of, it's obvious who should win. Um, but there's been, you know, there's we've covered a lot. I mean, it, it might only seem like, well, it might only seem like we've covered, you know, a, a finite amount of movies per season, but when you consider the breadth of genre we've covered within them, it's huge. I mean, uh, yeah, and like I say, like whether it was the documentary episode, which I still think is probably our best episode ever. Yeah, I was about yeah. to mention that. That that episode in particular, I think, is... If, if I were going to give anyone just an episode of the show to listen to, that's the one. Yeah, I think I, I think that kind of accurately sets out what the show aims to do. But to think of some of the some of the I was thinking about you know blue is the warmest color. Um, you know, have an opportunity to 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 watch that movie or Stranger by the Lake, which is a movie I watched like about three or four nights ago because obviously I'm never tired of seeing Cock. Um, sure, sure, so, that tracks. Um, yeah, but to, to watch that movie again and and see the impact, I, I genuinely think that movie is like is is borderline, you know, masterful. You know, like the, the way that that story unfolds and it is a very basic story, but the way that unfolds throughout and the suspense it garners to that kind of almost builds up to that crescendo of that final scene of that guy walking up the hill after murdering the police officer, and that is fucking terrifying. <laughs> Um, I think yeah. So I, I think I genuinely kind of think it's one of my proudest things in podcasting is that I like to think that every single show that I'm involved with will cover a different aspect, whether one's more comedy related or one's more factual or one's more horror or whatever. But the thing I'm most proud about with this show is not only that I get the opportunity to see great movies, but we get to do the movies justice. I think in the discussions, um, and there aren't many shows that pit 
two movies and sometimes two powerhouse movies side by side and then basically come down to, you know, if we were putting these specific goal posts out, what one is the is the better suggestion or the you know, the better within that genre. There are very few shows that do that and I think um whilst it agonizes me and ages me horribly bo um <laughs> uh, I think I can't wait for season three. I don't know how we top season two, but I can't wait to get into it. Well, the in uh, the winner of season three will actually get to set the other person on fire. That's how we top it. I ah. mean, it, it eliminates the possibility of a season four unless we have a real Hannibal scenario where the burn victim, you know, comes back and is just all gross. But uh, <laughs> I don't. Quite frankly, that's why I'm putting all my eggs in the season three basket. That's either <laughs> the end of me or. You know, I, I take over podcast under the stairs. <laughs> so <laughs> we're playing for keys now. That's what that's what we ought to do is whoever whoever wins gets the other person's show. Oh god. <laughs> uh, this one this is like it, it feels it feels weird that we're closing out. I, I keep forgetting this show does seasons, um, and it feels it feels weird that we're closing out on this one. But then I, I, I remind myself that we have the the glory of the final episode still to come, which is when we go incorrect, and that's when things get um, to 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 uh, quote yourself, Bo, it gets creakery. Um, and everyone that has listened to season one will know that we closed out last year with Winter Beast, um, kind of ruling the roost. And part of me just wants a Winter Beast double belt to close out the show. <laughs> well, we are, you know, keep in mind, listeners, we will have our public viewing of uh, of Winter Beast, and we'll we'll figure the dates on that out, and and hopefully announce it next mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we're gonna we come together like uh, the whole season is a battle, a struggle, mano y mano, <laughs> and then at the end of it, we come together to celebrate Winter Beast. I th- yeah. I think it's. It's sort of the midnight clear of Duncan and Bo come correct when we put down our weapons and exchange gifts across yeah. enemy lines. Um, and I, I weirdly referenced a midnight clear, which me and four other people have seen, <laughs> which is, of course, about the truce that existed in World War One between yeah. Allied and, and Axis powers. Yes. Um, sorry, right, was it Axis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Axis powers, I believe, is what they call themselves, yeah. Yeah. Um, I you know the bad guys always have the best names, even in real war. Uh, yeah, you know because allies is nice and all, but eh. but it's because they're named by us. They didn't call themselves <laughs> the Access Powers, you know. <laughs> people people have to come up with a name that sounds immediately threatening and badass in order to galvanize people or galvanize sorry people behind their cause to fight them. So that's why they always have bitching names. Well, I think we should rename ISIS then and just call them Darth Muslim. <laughs> it makes them sound more terrifying, but at the same time, also kind of badass. Yeah, I, I, ISIS is a... Yeah, I, I, we could do better. We could do better, ladies and gents. We could do better. Right. ISIS is an Egyptian goddess. Yes. And, you know, that's cool and all, but I, it sounds like a comic book character, quite frankly. I'm not <laughs> impressed, ISIS. Get your shit together, Islamic State. Just imagine a, 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 an ISIS terrorist listening to this show and kind of bowing their head in shame just now and going, <laughs> yeah. I never thought of it like that, but Bo makes a good point. Our yeah. name's kind of lame, guys. 
brought on board by our discussion of Four Lions, they were like, well, we'll give this podcast a shot. <laughs> In between ululations. And uh, and then I heard it and was like, you know what? This is a pretty good show. I'm going to come back. And here we are just, you know, raking them over the coals for their name. But, you know, they're they're a bit shit uh, as an organization, <laughs> really. I love this idea of basically, isn't that the kind of the, the, the credo of Duncan and Bo come correct? We like to bring in listeners and then on the next episode that we brought them in, just badmouth them, ridicule them, make them feel worthless. Um and then replace them with other listeners. We can do the same thing to the following. <laughs> right. We, 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 we have new listeners each week. Yeah. Uh, and, and they are just like, we get listeners for about an episode and a half. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's all part of our, our greater plan called operation revolving door. <laughs> <laughs> just listeners come in and out, in and out. Um, Operation Revolving Door is also uh, what I refer to as as going to the bathroom when I have to share it with people. (laughs) But speaking of sharing urination, Duncan, I would like to point out that The Duke of Burgundy is is not only the last film we do before Incorrect and, and, and is the last sort of official movie of season two. It will be the 50th film we've discussed on this show. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. So you have uh, the listeners have 50 movies, two of which are ridiculously bad, but they still count because they're still worth watching. Uh, and well, is Winter Beast bad or is it? It's awesome. It's transcendental um, is the do word. You know I would their, use. Do you know they're remaking Blood Feast as we speak right now? Did you see the press shots from it? I, I haven't seen any of the shots. I knew they were remaking it. Does it does it look terrible? It's this will be the third remake because Mardi Gras Massacre is technically the right. remake. Right, right. Um, it just doesn't look anything. I thought like the Ford Ramses doesn't have ridiculously painted on eyebrows. I'm out of that movie already. If he brings a pillow, Dead to Dead his is the greatest movie ever. <laughs> right. That's all you have to get right about that is there's uh, a villain who is going to bring a pillow uh, mm. for his victim. And uh, and then just show some cowperings, and you're done. The thing that confuses me most about that is the conversation where someone sits down and says, you know, of all the great horror franchises and property, intellectual property out there that we could potentially remake. And let's be honest, there's still plenty. There's plenty of road to toe with that. Um, the conversation that comes up where someone says, you know, what would be perfect for 2016 audiences? Blood feast. Yeah. What what the audience are asking for is a remake of an H.G. Lewis movie that few people have seen, and those that have thought it was awful. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, just, it makes sense. It. I don't know. I. <laughs> I, I genuinely, it's, it's confused the fuck out of me. So, I you know I I'm gonna quote the show Archer really quickly. There was a recent episode where they're attending a Hollywood party, and. Um, they're supposed to be un- undercover and they're, they're end up on some tangential conversation about the orders. And someone says, is this necessary? And Archer's response is, this is Hollywood. There is absolutely nothing around us that is necessary. <laughs> and I, I adored that line. I, and I, it speaks to a remake of Blood Feast. Is it necessary? Of course not. No. But it, uh, it, <laughs> I, I, I'll watch it. You know, I'm yeah, not above a, it. It's apparently something that's happening. Yeah. 
Um, so let's uh, let's get this party started, Duncan, mm-hmm. with uh, a, a quick recap of what we've been watching in terms of what was good and what was bad. Just one apiece. I know how you like to sneak in a couple. Oh, I've got just one apiece this time. All right, let's hear it. Um, so we'll start with the bad. Um, finally checked out that Martyrs remake. Oof. <laughs> Oof, Duncan. Have you seen it? I have seen it, as a matter of fact. Yeah, talk about talk about bad ideas for remakes. Um, that one is is it's soulless. It's a soulless movie. It has you know, it's kind of it's kind of looking. It'd be it's it's kind of like trying to look into the eyes of a mannequin and expect to see something staring back at you. It's <laughs> blank. It's it's. No Kim Cattrall here coming to life, just <laughs> yeah. plain old mannequin. It's, I, I just don't, I don't, I, it's exactly what I thought it was going to be. I always said that, you know, when that remake would happen, someone would look at it and take away the wrong thing from that movie, which is not all the really interesting subtext about existence um, and religion. And they would focus on just the gore. Um, and the pain, and but that, it's it's not that gory. But but that's what yeah yeah, yeah it, it's like they've kind of focused on that. But they then have somewhere along the line, someone has really tried to work on this relationship, which is not a big issue in that in that for, in the original, and really try and flesh that bit out, and didn't even manage to do that. It seems like a catalogue of errors, um, and not in. It finished, and I I kind of thought to myself, I hate using this line. Had this movie been called something else, it may have it would have been something that I would have went, ah, eh, that's all right. But because I know the lineage of the movie, because I know where it's coming from, what it's trying to be, and what it's a remake of, it doesn't even land close. I mean, not even like nothing about the movie. It's not even shot nice. Um, and that, the one thing you can say about, regardless how depressing or you know or are so crushing the, the the original movie is. Um, there's that weird kind of duality between the, the the horrible subject matter and the fact that French cinematography is generally on point. And this just didn't even have that. I I, I don't I know why they did it under wraps so much, but it you know because it is a movie that is is fairly well respected within our genre. Um, it's just awful. I, like, I, there's nothing stand out at all about it. It's just, a, it kind of feels like, you know, that way where you would have a VHS and you would film something for the kids. A VHS is an older medium. Um, and you would, record, <laughs> you would record something on it and then you would record over that and record over that and record. And but I think It's, maybe, it's the thing they were watching in the rain. Yeah, <laughs> that thing. Um, but I think you get to maybe about, 10 or 11 you know rewrites over that the quality is pretty much gone the color's not as sharp everything's gone and it just kind of feels very flat that's what the movie felt like it just felt unremarkable there's nothing remarkable about it at all it's, it's just a very banal movie and i think the, the biggest crime of a remake against Mar- martyrs is a movie that you you are 
when that movie finishes, you are compelled to speak to anyone about what you've seen. Like even people that don't watch horror movies, you want to tell them about martyrs, um, even if it's just to 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 exercise the demons of the viewing of it. It's a movie that leaves so many questions. It's a movie that that really does make you, on some level, question even the end, which is completely open to maybe your um, theological bent, so to speak. Um, this movie finished, and I could not give a tiny rat's ass. Like I, I just kind of, I felt like I'd been cheated at an hour and a half. It's not a good movie at all. So I just, I, it's not even a, it's not even a bad movie. It's just a meh movie. If, if I may disagree with you uh, on one point, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not going to argue that it's a good movie. It, it's not. Um, and I also think the argument of, uh, not that you were baking this, but you, you mentioned it, the argument about, well, it's, you know, if this were called something else, it might be okay. Mm-hmm. They didn't do that. They called it martyrs. They're clearly referencing source material and, and you can't help. It, it's like the poltergeist remake. If that movie hadn't been called poltergeist, it might've been all right. Yeah. But the fact that it's called poltergeist, well, you fucked yourself. That's not mm-hmm. my fault. You did that. <laughs> And you can't blame me for comparing you to the movie that's better than you. Yeah. Um, but there is a brilliantly wonderful moment in the remake of Martyrs. <laughs> and it it occurs at the end of the film um, where uh, we get, you know, in, in the original French film, there there's the moment of revelation where the the martyr in question reveals something to the woman of the film. Mm-hmm. And it happens again in this one. And then uh, her savior, her rescuer, who, uh, if I'm not mistaken, died in the original Martyrs. That's right, yeah. Um, she shoots the lady before she can reveal it. Mm. Which, this is not the brilliant part. The brilliant part is this. Someone nearby says, I heard it too, and then he shoots himself. <laughs> It was the most tacked on bullshit of like, hey, remember in, in Martyrs when it was amazing when at the end of the movie the, the lady did the thing? Hmm. And they were like, yeah, we can't really do that in this movie because we've got this other girl hanging out and we want her to shoot the lady. It's like, yeah, but what if there's somebody nearby who just happens to overhear it? You know, it is the dumbest thing in, in a movie that has several dumb moments. Yeah. It, but it, I laughed so hard. And that's not like when you watch Martyrs, laughter is not what you you anticipate. Of course not. <laughs> but I laughed really hard at. I heard it too. Bam! It was. <laughs> oh, it's just the best. Um. It, yeah. It totally defo- that that movie is just everything wrong about doing a remake. It's not. It's not savage enough. The changes it makes don't ever land. Mm-hmm. It, it's a real mess. It just, yeah, like you said, it just misses the point of, of what made the original so, so good. Um, all right, but uh, what else did you say that maybe is better than the Martyrs remake? Well, talk about um, a movie that hits every point right um, and kind of gave me the same sweaty Pam experience that I had when I watched Martyrs for the first time. Um, I got the opportunity to go to the Scottish premiere of The Green Room. So, don't hate me. <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> so, uh, this is um, written and directed by Jeremy Solnier, um, he of Blue Ruin theme and Murder Party. And 
basically for any anyone that has been listening to the show for a, for a while or anyone that listens to any other shows that myself and Bo do, you will know that both of us kind of love Blue Ruin, like just a little bit more than it's probably healthy for fans of a movie. <laughs> it's really, oh my God, that it's, movie is so good. It's fucking amazing. Um, it, you know, it's emotionally crushing, um, beautifully shot and, you know, wonderfully acted um, and tense, like really tense. Um, so expectations were high for the green room. Um and I'm here to say that I think the Green Room's the better movie. I think he's top Blue Ruin. Um, I genuinely think the Green Room is a pretty phenomenal movie. Um, on the last episode, we talked about Hush, and we talked about director Mike Flanagan and his ability to take kind of established subgenres and put a t- kind of twist on them, whether it was Oculus kind of almost putting a kind of fresh spin on the the kind of haunted house ghost story or a hush which is basically a kind of slasher home invasion movie but put the twist on it what would that be like if the person trapped inside couldn't hear or speak um the green room kind of follows suit with that it is basically like a siege movie slash home invasion movie but the it has a, a claustrophobic tenseness that kicks in about 15 minutes into the movie and then doesn't leave, like, right to the end of the movie. And where Blue Ruin did have, like, like, like really powerful, tense moments, there were bits of levity in our space throughout it, which kind of just made you get enough chance to catch your breath. Um, the green room's first 15 minutes will allow you to catch your breath and the last two minutes and everything else in between will have you on the edge of your seat sweating profusely at what you're seeing. It is a masterclass in how to create tension. Um, the story of the movie, and I won't spoil anything because I know it's just come out in the States so and it's just about to come over in the UK on May 13th, it's getting a cinematic run which once again speaks volumes to the director because um, Blue Ruin didn't really get any proper cinematic run at all. Um, basically the story is of a travelling punk band kind of really living the punk lifestyle as in living from gig to gig basically getting enough money to get them to the next gig and through an error at a show that they were supposed to play the end up having to take another show on short notice um, in a club which is run by white supremacists. Um, And I'm giving nothing away here. This is all basically first 15 minutes of the movie. Um, They play their set and as they're getting ready to pack up and get their money, one of them walks into the green room in the back and sees a couple of guys standing over the dead body of a girl and then the club is put down a lockdown to keep them in there. Um, there oh, so that many... already sounds great. I didn't even know that much, but did you not? Um, right. Uh, so I mean, I don't feel spoiled or anything. That just sounds amazing. Yeah. Right. So th- let me just tell you a couple of things that are going to make you love this movie. Right. Um, the casting is fucking genius. Um, the, the kind of main character in it is played by Anton Yelchin. So if you've checked out any of the Star Trek remakes, he plays Chekhov. 
and he's a great actor. I, I really, really yeah. like him. I think he's like pretty wonderful to watch. Um, he was good in the the Fright Night remake, actually. I liked him in that he, as well. Yeah, yeah, um, like it or hate it, it, that he's good in it. I don't. I actually think that remake's all right. It's just, it, yeah. it's it's never going to be as good as the original, but it's not a bad remake. Um, it has. <clears throat> sorry, I cleared my throat there. Um, a, I, I can never pronounce his name right. I don't know if it's Mashon Blair or Macon Blair, but the guy from Blue Rune makes an appearance. This is his third appearance in the movies. Um, so he's in there. Imogen puts is in it. She's stunning in the movie but the genius casting for me in this movie is Patrick Stewart who a lot of people will be like Captain Picard yes Professor Xavier is the leader of the white supremacists and through his voice in this movie which is how we get most of the contact with him is absolutely fucking terrifying like he is nothing short of terrifying as a character just through the words he says um it's a movie that will throw so many twists and turns that you will not see coming um at you that is basically when people talk about an emotional roller coaster um that is exactly what this movie is but there is no break for you know, air on this one. As soon as shit gets real, this movie grabs you for an hour and keeps you on a state of alert tension right to the very end. It was I movies don't tend to get much of a reaction like on, on like, like Martyrs did, obviously, but there are very few movies that make me very pensive watching them. And I was very aware that about fifteen minutes into this movie my my leg was nervously twitching. And it did that right to the end of the movie. I think it's absolutely fucking phenomenal. And the practical gore effects will... If you like the Blue Room practical gore effects, then you're going to fucking love this. Um, it is a must-see. I, I, I think, as it stands just now, it's my film of the year. So, Well, you, sir, have sold a ticket. Yeah. You, as, gonna, as if I wasn't gonna, going already. <laughs> like you're you're going to absolutely love it, Bo. There's no way you're not going to love it. I yeah. think, I actually think I prefer it to Blue Rune. And Blue Rune is a movie I fucking love, so. Yeah, I, that guy's putting together a pretty great body of work. Like, even Murder Party, which is a, a cheap little comedy, um, has some moments in it that are, are oh, really a, good. Yeah, it's, it, it knows exactly what it is. Um, and The Green Room, for me, is he's this is his first step up with bigger named actors and that that casting of Patrick Patrick Stewart is honestly his genius I don't know who made that decision but that's it's brave for someone like Patrick Stewart to take that role because he doesn't need to do it um and it's 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 brave from a casting point of view as well of putting him in with the weight of what that guy has as his catalogue of work and a lot of people, like, um, I went with my best friend and he was like, that's kind of strange that they chose him. And I was like, well, Patrick Stewart's earlier career in movies, he tended to, to play villains or nefarious characters because he was British for a start. Um, and he was a Shakespearean actor and that's just the Hollywood stereotype of a villain. So, right, yeah, look at Alan Rickman. I mean, yeah. it, it took him a while to get out of villain roles. Yeah, and that's just that's just how it's set up. Um, so it's great to see him coming back, and I cannot wait for you to see it, and I cannot wait to discuss it. Um, it's, it's up there with uh, another movie, which we're going to be discussing on podcasts under the stairs coming up real soon. It's up there with High Rises, like some of the in, most interesting work I've seen this year. And that's, that. I mean, that's going head to head with things like The Revenant, hatefully, you know, big blockbuster movies. And I think 
it, like these indie titles are just fucking killing it like with ease. Uh, the green room is a real deal. Go and check it out. All right, uh, I will. That <laughs> sounds great. Um, I will start with the movie, uh, however, that I enjoyed most since we last spoke. And, and this is a movie that both of us have seen, um, but I went back and watched it again and fell in love uh, anew. Um, and that is the movie Shudder. Ah, yes. Uh, and it had been a long time since I watched it. Um, and I, I actually, you know, the, uh, the other show I do, um, which is called Hero Hero Go Show, available now. Um, <laughs> that's a great show, by the way. That, that's, ah, thanks, man. I think you're like, you've just dropped episode four. Yeah, the the uh, episode on Juan uh, just dropped. Uh, so as you're listening to this, you will be able to uh, to go find that on legionpodcast.com or just on iTunes. Just actually, if you search for hero hero, just repeat the words, it pops up. So, um, but uh, yeah, we were talking Juan on that. But in, anyway, fun conversation and uh, and whatnot. But uh, we're not doing that for the show anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I just was in the mood to watch it. And man, oh man, I think that movie is, there is something about the image of the ghost on the guy's back. Yeah, that's terrifying. That freaks me the hell out. And yeah, I just, I never get enough of it. And I think the whole movie is really well put together and it's well paced and there's some great, great moments in it, but... Man, that thing lands with a bang. Yeah. Always reminds me of um, like things that you don't think would have an impact, but for some reason you you just get an unnatural spasm as a cold shiver goes up your back. Um, and whilst it's not it's not a Japanese horror movie, it is directed by the guy who did the original movie. But see the grudge, see that sequence where the hand comes out the hair in the shower. Freaked me out, like like freaked me out to a, a, an un, an unnecessary state for something which is such a simple jump scare. There is something immensely creepy about that. I mean, like just not Western creepy, you know, Eastern. That's come that's coming from a culture and a mindset that we're just not used to. And as a result, when it lands, it just terrifies me. And Shar has a lot of that, and it where things are just they're not the conventional scares that you would see in a you know, a Western horror movie. And they are kind of, on some level, so outlandish, but they, for some reason, they're just really effective. They just work really well. Yeah, there's something reptile brain about that image yeah. that, that really hits me. And, um, man, I just I, I just adore it. I, you know, it's it's one of the films, as I've, you know, been doing the, the other show and, and watching a lot of Asian horror cinema in particular, um it just stands out, you know, it's like a Juan or something where it, it's a movie. If I think about it and it's dark and late at night, uh, then, <laughs> then I, I do those things where it's like, you know what? I'm going to turn on a light. No big deal. I'm fine. I'm not scared, but there's a light going on. And fuck you for calling me scared. McLeish. I'm turning the light on. Cause I want to turn the light on. No other reason. This idea, I'm not even on the Skype call with you, but you're just saying it out loud anyway. Yeah, I'm just fuck you, McLeish. Um, <laughs> oh dear. Uh, oh, what's yeah. your bad? What's your softly, bad? Softly, softly, catchy monkey. Yeah, that you, is, you really loved that, didn't you? I 
that is one of the greatest things. Like, there are three things that I've seen recently that are are encountered recently that are a pure joy for me. One is the the ghost right on the back in Shudder. Mm-hmm. The other is a recent episode of Game of Thrones in which a giant smacks a dude into a wall. Yeah, that was that. I, I didn't think that. I genuinely, when that happened, I was like, that is amazing. And you also have to take into account that in a scene either just before or just after it, a, a giant Frankenstein crushes a man's head off the wall. And I was just like, oh, we're just we're just breaking heads. Amazing. Yeah. But seeing that giant swing a dude by the ankle into a stone wall and having yeah. him splat is... I, I, I paused it. I just started cackling with joy. It was... Yeah, if you're going to have a giant in a program, that's what they need to do. Yeah, and I'd never seen it happen in a movie or television show before. It was one of those things that I don't You have. You have. Where have I seen it? You have seen a giant Groot grab a plasticine person and fuck them off a wall. Yeah, yeah, but that's... (laughs) It's not quite the same... I mean, yes, you're right. It's wonderful. Game of Thrones is trying to live up to Winter Beast. <laughs> Game of Thrones is the Winter Beast of fantasy television. <laughs> I think we can say that with some degree of confidence. Uh, but the third thing was Softly, Softly, Catchy Monkey, um, which is on the, the Baz V Horror episode of uh, uh, Halloween, uh, the first three Halloweens. Yeah, it's one of my favorite episodes I've ever Our, recorded of anything. Halloween's Halloween Arum, something. I'm not sure what the plural is, but uh, yeah, you know it is fantastic. Like the Baz is in such rare form for that episode. It is tremendous. Um, and so I, I, if you listen to nothing else, like I would almost say, turn off this podcast, go listen to that, and come back. And it, that that's going to take you about four hours, and uh, and it's probably going to cost you your wife or husband or whoever you hold dear. But it's worth it. It's all worth it. Um, it oh, it's so good. Uh, but yeah, those three things are oh man, it just. Yeah, that- oh. <laughs> I should not be giving advice to anyone, sexual no. advice to anyone, when the sentence softly, softly, catchy monkey comes up. That's yeah. <laughs> is, he said as well. He says we we see as we see over here. No one says that over here. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know where it came from because I I feel like I would have heard you say it sometime in the years we've known each other now because yeah. you know my love of monkeys. So. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it is in in context, he is is advising someone to propose group sex mm-hmm. with their wife, with their wife, and, and other ladies because of a, a fine beard. Um, but the the phrase "softly, softly, catchy, catchy monkey" is used to describe how sensitive the proposition is. <laughs> It's beautiful. I kind of, I kind of wish I could do one of those Mission Impossible things where I could just live as Baz for a day, and just to see what that's like. I mean, it's got to be this surreal Willy Wonka-like experience. And it, I don't think people understand that's what he's like all the time. Like, I, I live like about, I live maybe about a ten-minute walk from his house, like a, a two-minute drive. Um, from his house and I see him regularly um, and he's just like that all the time <laughs> like yeah. constantly like that all the time that's just who he is and that kind of adds to the 
like some people are like, oh, it's great, you know, like yeah, and sometimes it's great, but sometimes Baz being Baz is stressful. Um, and, <laughs> I can uh, say that, yeah. And um, we've already recorded our, at the at the time of this recording, anyway, we've already recorded our reviews for Halloween's Part Four and Five. And all I'm going to say is, if you thought the the first episode was great, you ain't heard nothing yet. I can't believe, it. like, I might just completely lose my mind and that's not an exaggeration like if it's as good or better then i could just pop my shit it, that may be the end of me yeah yeah he, he's pretty much ruined me some some of the things he comes away with on on those episodes are just absolutely brilliant so yeah right to your bad sir yes Yes, I watched a movie, and I gotta admit, man, because I've been watching so much stuff for, uh, you know, for this show and the other show, and also for the eventual Cronenberg Roundtable we're gonna be doing, mm -hmm. I can't really say I've watched a terrible movie. I have, however, watched a movie that I was a little bit disappointed by, and that's Ava's Possessions. Oh, I'm not aware of this one. Ava's Possessions is a clever idea. Uh, in which a, a young lady named Ava, uh, as you would imagine, um, it, the, the movie opens with her being exorcised. Uh, the demon is cast out. And the movie is her trying to piece together what happened and what she did while she was possessed. And it's, it's very tongue in cheek. Um, it's got a pretty good cast. Like there, there are some names that, Probably aren't super expensive, but lend some credibility. Like Carol Kane plays a role, and um, William Sadler uh, is in it, and um, it, like there's a support group that she goes to for people who have been possessed. Mm -hmm. uh, who and part of their uh, uh, their therapy in this session is that they have to wear this amulet that invites the spirit back in, and you, you know you're cured when you can take it off yourself, and and that kind of thing. Um, it's a really interesting idea. There are some funny moments in it. At the end of the day, um, oh, you know who's in it is um, uh, what is the the young gentleman's name from Spring? Um, played the lead in 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 Spring, and I can't think of his name now. But uh, oh fuck uh, yeah yeah. But anyway, that guy's in it, and it you know it's it's not a terrible movie, but at the end of the day, it was real. It, it kind of lands somewhere in the middle uh, in terms of quality. It's got a nice style to it. Uh, the lead performance is good. Um, but it just kind of goes nowhere. Like, it's a great premise, and it ends up being a pretty by-the-numbers sort of comedy horror. It, it's not even that funny. I would, you know, I would put horror first, horror comedy. Mm -hmm. um, there are some funny moments. But, yeah, I, I, I had heard some good things about it, uh, and... Um, yeah, it was okay. Um, you know, if you run across it, it, you could do worse for yourself, but, um, I feel like there is a good movie to be made about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, this just isn't quite it. It's not there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little half baked and, and, uh, which is a better movie actually. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. And, but that said, you know, I've been watching all this Cronenberg and stuff. I, you know, I'm half tempted to say Cosmopolis. Uh, but I, I also find myself thinking about Cosmopolis more than I would if it were just a bad movie. Yeah. Um, but we'll get to that. That's a little teaser, a little, uh, 
a sousant, if you will, <laughs> of what is coming in the Cronenberg Roundtable as we discuss heavy hitters like Fast Company and Crimes of the Future. Yeah, this is, is yeah. <laughs> That's kind of, that's kind of a weird show, by the way. The, the, yeah, the first hour of that podcast is just going to be like, I don't know, man. He was in college. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's going to happen. Um, stereo. I mean, I don't know. Crimes of the future. I mean, I don't know who the narrator is. I don't know what the fuck's going on here. All I know yeah. is I, I ate a pretty disappointing sandwich as I watched it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think the ham was off. Uh, <laughs> Duncan. Yes. Shall we turn our attention to our first film? Yes. And it is, uh, as it turns... Uh, my my pick for you, mm-hmm. and it is a little movie starring a bunch of unknowns. <laughs> uh, called the Accidental Tourist. Uh, based on a uh, I believe Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Ann Tyler of the same really? name. Really, I may have made that up. <laughs> I don't know. Hold on. Hold if, we're, on. If, we're making, if we're making stuff up, you may as well see and the Oscar winning accidental tourist the one best movie that year and uh, the the palm door at can um <laughs> all of, yeah all of those things are true uh yeah i don't know I, i'll i'll look it up we'll we'll fact check this on the break um but the accidental tourist the uh the imdb uh synopsis is an emotionally distant writer of travel guides must carry on with his life after his son is killed and his marriage crumbles uh this stars uh, people again, little known actors like William Hurt, <laughs> Gina Davis, Kathleen Turner, uh, Bill Pullman, Charles Ogden Stiers. Um, who am I leaving out? Is that that's pretty much the gamut? Of, that's the uh, big ones, yeah. And um, it is. Uh, first of all, we didn't even announce the subject of this show. It is romance, Duncan, and that's why I turned to the Exodus Tourist because nothing is more romantic than the death of your child. As clearly seen in this film, uh, Gina Davis is uh, uh, a delight, I find. Um, it is written, co-written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan that you may know from such little movies as The Empire Strikes Back, uh, Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens. He, he did a little writing on. He directed and wrote The Big Chill. Um, you can find all these. They're obscure films, but I, if you look hard enough, you can find them. Um, it's it, it, just a collection of, uh, powerhouses, powerhouse arm. Yeah. I, um, I kind of, a weird directorial record though. I mean, body heat. I loved why Earp, I quite like Dreamcatcher's awful. Yes. <laughs> Dreamcatcher is terrible, but this was in the like Raiders big chill era. Yeah. And yeah. when he was doing some of his best work, I find, um, but, uh, you know, before we turn to you, Duncan, uh, we're going to play a little clip here. This is a phone call that occurs between William Hurt as uh, Macon Leary, who has uh, recently encountered Gina Davis's character, Muriel Pritchett, uh, when he was in, in need of uh, someone to board his dog. And she is the eccentric woman uh, who worked at the, uh, the kennel 
And she gives him a call uh, to just talk. And that is something that maybe Macon is not uh, particularly good at. So we'll listen to this and be right back. Larry. Macon, it's Muriel. Muriel. Muriel Pritchett. Uh, yes. From the vets who got on so good with your dog. All right. I was just wondering how Edward was. Looks all right to me. No problems? Well, he's developed this new symptom. He gets angry when I leave the house. He starts barking and showing his teeth. He had to be trained. Tell you what, maybe I could just come around and discuss it. Well, I don't really think... Or you could come to my place. I'd fix your supper. Make him. What do you say? I think for now I'll just try to manage on my own. Well, I can understand that. Believe me, I've been through that stage. So what I'll do is, I'll wait for you to get in touch. Yes, that would be good. Goodbye. I don't want to be pushy. So, Duncan, I I have a small confession to make before we get into this. Uh, this isn't quite Harold and Maude territory. <laughs> but I love this movie. I, I, yeah, I, I, when I was watching this movie, I, I, I could feel a lot of bull coming through this. And that's something nobody wants, by the way. <laughs> if you're watching a movie, a little bit of bow is not what you're shooting for most of the time. But, uh, yeah, I, I saw this movie a ton, believe it or not, when I was a kid. Uh, kind of made the rounds on HBO and I just kind of fell in love with it. I, you know, I think it's real quirky and interesting. And as I've gotten older, I've, I've grown to appreciate, um, the, the genuine emotion. I think that, that runs through this film. And I know emotion is not something you're comfortable with Duncan. So I'm <laughs> curious to hear what you made of the XL tourist. Yeah. I kind of loved the movie and hated it in equal measure. Um, I've watched this movie three times in the last week to try and get a handle on exactly how I feel about it. Um, I think one of the key words you mentioned there is quirky. It is very quirky. It deals with particularly um, our main character played by William Hart. Um, kind of... He comes from a family of people that are very socially awkward and that is... Uh, that's putting it nicely. Um, basically, he is a, a writer of travel books, tourist books, um, which basically are designed from his point of view of the best way to travel where you don't have to interact with anyone uh, at all. Um, you can get from A to B without really having any sort of contact with any other humans, um, which is kind of how he wants to, to live his life. And we find out very quickly on in the movie that um, he is married to Kathleen Turner. So that's the, the two of them uh, kind of back in a row uh, together, kind of showing up shades of uh, body heat. Uh, which the director did back in 81, which was a movie we spoke about on here I fucking loved. Um, I, I like to think this is kind of a sequel to Body Heat, yeah, where they just, end up together and then have a kid and then everything goes wrong. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like it is some sort of weird, spiritual, quirky sequel. Um, 
So yeah, basically they had a, a kid. Uh, the kid died, and what I believe eventually the story comes out is something to do with a holdup. Yeah, he it? was he was shot um, as William Hurt describes it. He was shot in the head during okay. a robbery of a fast food place. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is basically taking its toll on the couple, and. Uh, Kathleen Turner is the one that kind of instigates this idea of maybe we should separate um, and, you know, go separate ways and I need space, etc. Which she does. Um, In the meantime, William Hart has to do a lot of travelling for his sequel book to The the Accidental Tourist. And um, when he puts his dog uh, into a shelter, excuse me, into a shelter, um, he comes across Muriel Pritchett. Uh, and, and if you didn't know what her name is, she will tell you a lot in this movie. Um, played by the wonderful Gina Davis. And I'm not going to lie, I still have um, an unhealthy crush on Gina Davis. Um, I do too, and this movie is a large part of that for me. Yeah, like, I, I, I always, like, when I think about like really attractive and striking female um on screen presences. Um I sometimes overlook Gina Davis and I don't know why because I can think of very few movies where I didn't think, you know, that she was made to be, you know, in front of the camera. Um and I can think of things like uh, League of Their Own, which is a, a movie about a baseball and I fucking hate baseball. Um That's not wrong. But she is so unbelievably attractive in that movie, or even terrible movies like Cutthroat Island, which I will watch because she's in Pirate Get Up, and God damn it, it makes me hard. Um, long Kiss Goodnight, sir. The Long Kiss Goodnight is an amazing movie. <laughs> like that movie is like, and I will argue with people that's like, eh, it's not. No, that is an amazing movie. And when she cuts her hair into like a bob and it's peroxide blonde, dear God Almighty. Um, yeah, she can wield my weapon of mass destruction, boy. You know what I'm saying? I um, I don't. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> so she she plays like a, a very strange. I mean, she she tends to play. She has played roles in the past that have been quite bubbly and quite quirky because she has that kind of aura about her, and I would imagine that in real life she probably is kind of bubbly a personality. She looks like she spends a lot of time smiling. Um. And that's that is not that's not something that should be used as a slight or anything. Like that. She just generally comes across as quite a happy person, um, and her character is incredibly bubbly. Um, and she kind of pursues uh, Leary William Hart's character, um, and they eventually, after she kind of worms her way in, start a relationship, and. It's kind of against everything that Leary would want in a relationship. Um, she is, you know, she, she doesn't live in the nicest area. She has a son who is very needy. Um, she demands a lot of attention. She wants him to do things he wouldn't normally do or feel comfortable doing. Um, she smothers him quite a lot. She kind of wants to be around him all the time. Um and he eventually kind of lowers his guard and a genuine romance starts to blossom there. But obviously at the back of this is what happened to his son and his, you know, his other marriage. Um, and eventually 
we come to the sticky wicket of she wants to get married and he doesn't and just as things look like they're getting a bit complicated Kathleen Turner's character comes back on and she has been away she's had time to heal and you could look at it one of two ways you could look at it from the, the kind of pure point of view that now that her head's straight she wants to try and make things work with the man she married or you can look at it the slightly more cynical way because he's moved on she wants him back um and she comes back on and it's very comfortable for, for William Hurt to kind of go back with her. And he does for a while. And the movie ends in a way you would probably expect the movie end ultimately when it comes down to it. He chooses Gina Davis as a character. Um, this movie is a great supporting cast, like an incredible supporting cast. Um whether it is his family, uh, who a great selection of it. It was Amy Wright plays his sister, uh, David Ogden Steers plays his brother, and Egg Begley Jr. plays the other brother, and he's brilliant. Um, and all of them are just as quirky as he is. Um, they're a family of introverts that all live, still live in the same house that they all grew up in, with the sister kind of assuming the, the role of mother. Uh, cooking and preparing everything for them and they play cards every night and they you know don't answer the telephone when it rings and they just like to keep themselves to themselves and meanwhile you've got uh, Bill Pullman uh, who's Julian who plays uh, Lady's publisher who falls in love with the sister and then you know this whole thing about they get they finally finally manages to boo her they get married and then a couple of weeks after the marriage she's moved back in with the brothers to Kind of look after them again. What was that? What they, because the the brothers, in an effort to be more efficient, um, are are only wearing their pajamas and just falling apart. Essentially, yeah, they just because she's not there to do everything for them. And we have this great conversation where where Julian asks Lady that he doesn't actually know if one she's coming back or two if they're still married. Because it's just never been mentioned. You know, she just up and walked, um, and how he eventually positions things for her to, you know, move back in by getting her a job within the company under the guise of, well, the company needs a lot of help. So she starts working at the company and then he ultimately moves in with the brothers. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So his character basically is kind of, is converted in almost on some weird level to, to Leary by the end of it. You know, he's become this other member of this family. Um, and all those characters are great. What I found really frustrating about the movie, um, and it probably frustrated me the most through it, is that I don't necessarily think the end of the movie, the way it plays out, even though it's logical, I don't necessarily think it's fully justified. Um, are really not that it doesn't make sense because it does make sense because it's the classic Hollywood ending, but it it felt really how do how to word this without it because it's not a slight against it. I just didn't believe the end of the movie at all. Um, In what I, way? I'm curious because I I feel like it ends in the way that makes sense for that character. Yeah. Well, does it though? Because the, the the character throughout the movie is is reluctant to change. He likes things being regimented. He likes things being the way they are, and he doesn't like change. And and Gina Davis, and you know, 
opens up a freedom to him, which he then doesn't necessarily reject, but he does repress. Um, and he spends so much time in Paris with her, pushing her away, um, and not, and we don't see him longing after her. That when Kathleen Turner's character shows up, then all of a sudden he's longing after, her. and I don't think that's necessarily handled all that well. You know, whether it was, you know, she was like, oh, come on, are we going out for dinner? And he wasn't. And then we saw scenes later on where he was pining for her. I could kind of see it. It just kind of felt like it was wrapped up really quick at the end. Whereas I felt that they spent a lot of time earlier on in the movie setting up the the confines of what his character was like and, you know, how much work it took for Gina Davis to penetrate that shield. Um, when he reverts back to his kind of former life, he seems to drop that really quickly to go back with Gina Davis, which I don't think is necessarily true to who the character is. Um, and like I say, it's the, it's the ending that you would expect from a movie like this. I just felt it it felt a bit forced at the end. Um, and that frustrated me. And on the subsequent two viewings since, I feel the same way. I don't feel... I feel that when they're in Paris, there's opportunity there for... And Gina Davis really does try and do... You know, like, she she really does try to ingratiate herself back in there. And he's fairly resolute that he doesn't want anything to do with her. And there's no kind of... They don't really set up much in the way of any kind of coyish games between the two, which would show an indication out with when he opens a bottle of wine for her. But even then, it's more a... He does it through frustration for her as opposed to some sort of uh, kind of romantic, kind of almost playground sort of, I hate you, but, you know, that means I like you sort of sort of thing. It just kind of and it, it, it infuriates me because the rest of the movie, I think, is, is on point for me. It, it kind of handles a quirky humour, which I really appreciate. And it kind of shows, like, like, William Hart about this time was really as an actor, was really kind of, like, nowadays he's maybe not known for the, the body of work, which was more kind of quirky and comedic that he was doing towards the late 80s. And I think he's phenomenal in it. I, I really do. I mean, if you watch something like Broadcast News, which came out about the same time, Broadcast News is a ridiculously funny movie, and it kind of covers a similar subject matter about, you know, relationships and love and a kind of quirky, you know maybe less quirky but at the same time a kind of offbeat sort of comedic way um, to me the movie sets up a lot of great things at the start of the movie and then resolves an issue which I think would take more for the character to resolve in a very short time at the end and it kind of feels rushed I kind of hate it for that because um, up until that point the movie wasn't doing anything wrong for me and because that's the last beat of the movie um, I found that frustrating and I'm saying hate, I don't hate the movie but it, it, it infuriated me and on the subsequent watches I, do you feel do, do you wish to to kind of correct me with something do you think that? Do you not think that they spend a lot of time kind of her moving in that, that character as we've seen throughout it is quite reluctant to change that that end drop seems quite, pretty quick um, I actually, I disagree to a point, um, okay. you know, because as I, as I've said, I've seen this movie a million times. Uh, mm-hmm. That is probably an exaggeration, but not by much. 
Um, and a quick, uh, also a clarification. Ann Tyler did win the Pulitzer Prize, but not for the accidental tourist. She won for a book called Breathing Lessons. Um, and, uh, and I haven't read that one. I read, uh, accidental tourist, um, several times. So I, I do agree that the very end shot, it works because it's the first time in the movie that you really see William Hurt smile genuinely. Yes. And it, and it is, this movie is, yes, there, it is a romance, but it is ultimately the story of Macon Leary finding his way out of the life that he has been trapped in. And I think there are little moments along the way that do justify this. Um, I think, you know, certainly the conversations that he has with, uh, with Julian about his sister not being able to leave the house, that she, this is the life she's led for so long that she can't escape it. And then we have, uh, when Kathleen Turner moves back in, it's the first time you see him in a, in a real argument with someone when he kind of blows up at her, when she says, you know, you know what your problem is, Megan. Yeah. And it's this great moment where he finally explodes and, and his character is so subdued earlier in the movie when they're talking about the, the death of their son, Ethan, um, when she asks him about it and, and, and says that he's so closed off and he says, you know, I'm not closed off. I'm, I, I endure, I persevere. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you think you do, but you're just shutting yourself away from people. And, and makes the point that the, the symbol of his books, the excellent tourist is an armchair with wings and, and says, you know, that's you, you, you try to create this cocoon around yourself. And Gina Davis, uh, you know, obviously her character initially penetrates that. He finds this life that's surprising to him. I think one of the great moments of the movie is when she's, uh, it's around Christmas and she's washing dish- dishes and singing badly this Christmas song. Yeah. And he stops and watches her and she never sees him. And as he's walking away, he does this little dance along with, uh, with her singing. Uh, that I think is pretty wonderful. Um, but yeah, I think once you get into the Paris stuff, I, I do think it would be nice to have a moment where he tells Kathleen Turner, the Sarah character that, um, that he has been thinking of her. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I do think there's the moment like when they're at the Burger King in Paris and he's giving her the warning and stuff and the look he gives her when she takes the pickles and onions that he's pulled off. Yeah. You know, that there there's subtle stuff in there, but it, it could be a little more on the nose, especially in a movie that doesn't necessarily hide its themes in subtext. You know, it's pretty <laughs> it, it's pretty much like the characters will tell you, you know, what uh, what they're thinking most of the time. And and like I said, I think the last shot is a little hammy. Uh, but again, you know, it's the journey of this character and, and you see some genuine emotion from a character that has largely been closed off throughout the movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I see your point. I don't think it bothers me nearly as much as you do. Maybe it's because I think there are so many wonderful moments that happen in the movie mm-hmm. that all of that far overshadows my complaints because I still think it resolves its themes. I don't think it leaves any it does, of those yeah, threads there's, hanging. There's, there's, yeah, there's no there's no loose, loose thread, threads. Um, I do genuinely think it's a like I say, I think it's a, it's a wonderful comedy, and it did have me oh, romantic comedy. It did have me laughing quite a lot, and there is 
I mean, everyone's on point in this movie. I think William Hart, uh, who is a, who does play fairly confident roles um, in other movies, does show a surprising vulnerability or um, rigidness in his portrayal um, of Leary as a character. Um, Kathleen Turner's not in the movie a whole hell of a lot, but she does exactly what she needs to do in the movie. I think Gina Davis, Gina Davis is wonderful in the movie. I think she it's probably my favourite performance in the movie overall because she there's just something about her character. It is like optimism and positivity wrapped up in a human being. Um, and she does have her moments where she... You know, I, I I don't know if you uh, have known people like this that are just kind of sunny and cheery all the time, and then you get just below the surface, and there's a really wounded person beneath. And I think she does a good job, especially in the scenes where she's kind of saying uh, the, the one where uh, 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 Macon Leary says, "You know, we should send Ele- Alexander to a private school." And there's this conversation where she says, you know, what are you saying? Are you saying you're going to commit to this? Mm-hmm. Because I can't jerk them in and out of schools, you know, at your whim. And it's trying to get some kind of commitment out of a guy that, you know, is still pretty shattered. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I think there's some genuine uh, pathos to that character in addition to the optimism. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I I think all the characters are more complicated than they seem on the surface, and that's one of the things I really like about the movie. Even even his brothers, who seem very silly, and the, you know, they play this made up card game called vaccination. Yeah, um, uh, it kind of reminded me of um, and the movie's name escaped me, but we covered this with the what was the name of the comedy we covered with the guy who couldn't commit. Couldn't commit to the woman at all. You remember, he, he, you chose it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think now. You, give me something else. Give me an actor. Give me anything. I, um, I have to go back to our list. The, 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 the famous scene where he's in buying the guy in the sports shop makes oh, wife. Modern Love. The Albert yeah, Modern Brooks Love. Movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so Modern Love is this, is a romance comedy as well, which is incredibly quirky, right? Um, and I kind of liken this movie to that in that they would probably share the same genre, but I don't necessarily... I think they cover quirkiness in completely different... Kind of you, you, you have a guy who is... like Leary is not an insecure character. He's very comfortable with who he is as a person, but I don't think fully understands how awkward that makes everyone else. Um, whereas in, you know, uh, in the other movie, we had the guy who was completely insecure... Uh, but put forward the front of being secure. I think that's probably one of the most endearing things about this movie is the fact that, like, it's it's only through his time with Gina Davis that he can actually start to see how maybe unreasonable some of the things he actually does or thinks are, um, and she slowly breaks down that. And that's that's a great thing to see, and I think the movie handles that really, really well. Um, and out with the like minor quibble I have at the end of it, I think it's a great movie. Um, and, you know, it, it, I just think it, it works on many many levels as well. I think the, the, the romance side works. Like, doing anything which is a splice of comedy and something else is always difficult to get the balance right, and I think this movie does a great uh, one other thing I would I would point out just as a a note for both you and the listeners, 
um, who may not be familiar with uh, Maryland and, and essentially kind of that northeast area, uh, even though Maryland's a little mid coast, but it's still of that tradition, you know, um, and the the very aristocratic air of his family that they mm-hmm. live in this big family home. And I think one of the more interesting elements of the movie to me, having seen it a number of times is the fact that he is dating someone so clearly beneath his station. Yeah. Uh, especially in the eyes of his family. Well, they mentioned that in the car. Yeah. When he's, his brother says to him, you know, what are you doing with her? And have you seen the place that she lives? And that kid, um, you know, so, so these things get mentioned to him as well. Yeah. I, I think it, I, I genuinely think it's a, it's a really, really, really good movie. Um, and an excellent choice. I think it hits the brief, like, it's a bullseye for hitting the brief for this week. I think it's spot on. That's what I like to hear, Duncan. And with that, we wrap up this episode. <laughs> oh, wait. PP. Um, <laughs> so we should probably take a break and come back and talk about the Duke of Burgundy, which was uh, your recommendation to me. Um, trigger warning. If... Uh, <laughs> if if you are alarmed by people peeing on you, or uh, you peeing on someone else, or perhaps face sitting, um, <laughs> I or or panty washing, any of those things, those will be discussed in in not uh, small detail uh, in the next segment. Uh, so you have been warned. Um, so, so we will be back right after this uh, to talk about the Duke of Peepee. I mean, Burgundy. <laughs> Hello? Hello. Who is this? Who are you trying to reach? I don't know. Um, I think you've got the wrong number. Do I? I'm going to hang up. Wait, don't hang up. What's that noise? Popcorn? You're making popcorn. Uh-huh. I'm about to listen to a podcast. Oh, really? Which one? Probably the podcast on Haunted Hill. Is that the one with the two guys with the beards? Uh, yeah, Dan and Gav. Dan and Gav, yeah. That podcast was scary, I liked it. Most episodes, they look at two different horror movies. Each episode, they look at a world of a strange, where they look at weird things from around the world. Sometimes they even do special episodes where they look at different genres or directors' discographies and talk about them. Maybe. So where can I find the podcast on Haunted Hill? Well, you can go to legionpodcast.com, Facebook, Twitter, or just go into iTunes and search for the podcast on Haunted Hill. So, are you going to ask me out? Um. Okay, right. So we're back. And, um, yeah, I kind of... I've got to be upfront and honest here. I chose the... The subgenre, the topic of discussion for this show, um, and I chose romance purely because I wanted to speak about the Duke of Burgundy. Um, it came out last year in the UK, twenty fifteen. Uh, well, I think it did some festival stuff in twenty fourteen, and it made my top five movies of the year overall. Uh, I think it's it's great. Um, it's directed and written by Peter Strickland. Um, whose previous two movies I have kind of loved. Um, the movie he did before this was uh, Barbarian Sim Studio, which I thought was just 
incredible. It was everything that I wanted um, from a movie that kind of covered the, the, the kind of weird, surreal Italian giallo subgenre in a way which I'd never seen done before. Um, before that, I'd done a movie called Catelyn Varga, um, which is a kind of... It's not rape revenge per se, but it's a, in a similar sort of vein, but done in a really interesting way. And The Duke of Burgundy is basically his step away into a completely different genre again. Um, and the synopsis for this one is listed on IMDb as a woman who studies butterflies and moths, tests the limits of her relationship with her lesbian lover, which is kind of what happens, really, for glossing over everything. Um, I'm going to butcher some names here. The movie stars Chara Dana, Kata Barch, Sidi Barbet, Knudsen, I think, Monica Swin. Knudsen is yeah. what we would say in Minnesota. <laughs> Knudsen. I think I've had a Knudsen before. They're lovely with a little bit of ice. It, yeah, delicious, yeah. Mm, that's the frosting on the muffin. Uh, <laughs> so, I'm just going to keep doing that forever. I used uh, that on the video game show the other day. Nobody, Nobody's mentioned a word when I said it either. That's because it's just accepted now. Um, it's just part of the vernacular of of the the world. Um so yeah, so uh I'm a big fan of Peter Strickland. I have been desperate to speak to anyone else who has seen this. No one has seen this movie. So I kinda of stacked the deck so you would see this movie. You before we get into this, I'd say I said on the last show unfairly that you didn't like Barbarian Sim Studio and that is not true. No, no, no. I I enjoy uh Barbarian Sound uh studio. Um I I don't love it. I yeah. think it's incredibly interesting. And I think I had it in the back of my head that you would find this movie on its worst day incredibly interesting. But I'm kind of hoping I got something more. So what did you make of the Duke of Burgundy? Uh, well, first, we'll do a clip. Because you son oh, of a bitch, you never introduce the clip. <laughs> I'm still in season one where there was no clips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I understand that, you know, but we've evolved as both a species and show. <laughs> Play Jamie Jenkins now. Yes. Um, all right, so here's a quick clip uh, from Duke of Burgundy, and uh, and then I'll I'll do my thoughts when we come back. Yeah, Bob, what are we able to chastise me? <laughs> right. I'm going to lock you in the chest. Yeah, listeners don't know. Honestly, he's a bully. He'll, <laughs> he'll beat me. <laughs> Shut your mouth, McLeish. <laughs> Clip. What's this doing here? This was on the pile. This was on the pile for you to wash. Sorry. I... I didn't see it. How could you not see it? I, I can wash it now. It's not a problem. No, you can't wash it now. And it is a problem. Because I have other plans for you now. It's just a few minutes. That's all it takes. I've waited enough already. You haven't washed anything properly and you forgot this. Sorry. You will be. What are you going to do? A little punishment. Uh, I can do it now. It's too late. <laughs> I do forget every fucking every I, fucking time. I know you do. And I and I don't even remind you anymore because I've tried that. <laughs> I'm, I'm short of uh, getting you tattooed <laughs> of like, Hey, when we do the show now, introduce a clip. Uh, okay, so I get clip. 
Yeah. yeah clip would fit over my knuckles, so I could get that done. Right. Uh, like, you do clip on, on one hand, and I don't know, what, what's the other? Like, the love-hate from Night of the Hunter? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just clip on both hands. Maybe that'll remind oh, you. Oh, Night of the Hunter. What a movie. <laughs> we're not talking about Night of the Hunter. We're talking about pee-pee. Um... <laughs> Kinda hope that I kinda hoping that that your windows open and one of your neighbours just heard you say we're not talking about Night of the Hunter, we're talking about pee pee. They would not be surprised. <laughs> Believe me, my neighbors are more familiar with my urine almost more than I am. <laughs> it's a long story and I'll, I'll I've got videos. It's it's a bit dark today. Someone needs to tell Bori Boy needs to drink more water. <laughs> right. Jesus kid. Drink some water. Um, yeah, it's a, a real uh, water world setup I've got going. Um, <laughs> so, oh God. Oh, you've just had the We Hate movies, haven't you? I did. I did. I yeah, listened to that today. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> it really is quite good. Absolutely uh, amazing. <laughs> um, so, the Duke of Burgundy, Duncan, mm-hmm. is. Uh, are, so. Here, here are the things that I find supremely interesting about this movie. Um, I think Peter Strickland, first of all, has an amazing eye. Uh, his his films are always beautiful to look at. Um, he is also apparently completely obsessed with nineteen seventies films. Yes, I, th- I th- authentically obsessed though. You know, a lot of people yeah. like the idea of maybe putting a certain aesthetic on it, but don't live true to like pure set design. And things like that, but all his movies feel authentically 1970s. Yeah, like Barbarian Sound Studio is kind of him riffing on uh, Giallo films. Mm-hmm. This is very much the uh, like Euro sex exploitation. Yeah, Jess Franco, Gene Rollin, that kind of uh, kind of oeuvre mm-hmm. of, of filmmaking. And man, does he nail it! I mean, it looks and feels like a European exploitation film from the seventies. <laughs> Only there is, uh, sorry to disappoint you, listeners, no nudity. Yeah. Um. You know, usually, like you know, particularly, I would say, uh, Gene Rollin, um, enjoyed his actresses in the in the bear, um, uh, <laughs> in the altogether, as as we say in church. Yeah, um, if you've watched any of the prison exploitations of Jess Franco, literally a breeze can come through the door and women's clothes are off. <laughs> right, right. Well, That's they're wearing very sheer gowns to begin with. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that a prerequisite of being in a, a women's prison was that you had to be naked all the time. Well, yeah, I mean, women's prison, sure. Um <laughs> They they don't have uh, skinheads in women's prisons, Duncan. They just have skins. <laughs> also a fact, you can check that on the internet. Uh, so, yeah. So this movie is the story of Evelyn and Cynthia. Evil and sin, perhaps. Um, yeah, right? So I do my research. Um they are, uh, as the film begins, they are in um, a lesbian relationship, but we don't know that quite from the outset. We start with um, uh, Evelyn uh, down by the creek, 
um, looking at, at butterflies and whatnots. Uh, and in fact, the Duke of Burgundy is actually a type of butterfly, mm-hmm. um, where, where the title originates from. So one of the best descriptions I saw of this movie is that this is a movie about lesbians and lepidoptera and that's it. And it's, mm-hmm. it, it's made for lovers of those two things. Um, I, I happen to love lesbians, Duncan. <laughs> uh, but in this context, uh, Evelyn, uh, you know, she, when we first meet her, she's down by the creek. She goes back to, uh, the home of Cynthia. At first, uh, I was led to believe, um, and I think not entirely wrongly, that she was just a servant of some kind. Yeah. That's how, that's, that's certainly how I approached it the first time. And as, as we go, we realize that she is given increasingly um, if not humiliating, uncomfortable tasks, uh, including the hand washing of, uh, of Cynthia's, um, undergarments, which are, uh, I wish I had the credit. I didn't jot it down, but two of the credits in the upfront are lingerie and perfume, uh, which I, I, I thought was great because how would you ever know? Um, uh, <laughs> a movie is the worst way to advertise perfume, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, uh, then we, we realize, uh, Cynthia is, um, uh, she, well, I'll take a quick step back. Evelyn washes her panties and it turns out that she's left one, uh, a pair of panties unwashed. And there's a whole conversation about how could you miss this? And then we go to, um, the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's behind a closed door. Like this movie is surprisingly demure for its subject matter. Yeah, deliberately, I think. Though absolutely deliberately. Um, Yeah, I think Strickland wants to put forward the the feel and authenticity of that Euro sexploitation movie without giving you the the skin. Yeah, it's it's sexploitation without the exploitation. Yeah. Um, and without the sex, mostly. Um, <laughs> so, uh, behind the, the closed bathroom door, Cynthia, uh, pees on Evelyn in, in theory in her mouth. Yeah. Well, she asked her to open her mouth. Yes. <laughs> and then, then you hear the sound of water filling up. The hollow sound <laughs> of urine splashing. Um, and and it's pretty striking. I mean, you don't see any of this, but it's still anytime somebody gets peed on in a movie, it's something you remember. <laughs> there are very few films in which that has taken place where I was like, did somebody get peed on in this movie? I kind of lost it. I started looking at the dog and then next thing I know. Uh, <laughs> so Cynthia is uh like apparently everyone in this this unnamed european town um which is also comprised of nothing but women there is not a single man in this movie to be seen yes uh and everyone seems to be really into butterflies mm-hmm. um because your your basic three settings are the library which you visit a little bit uh their home uh, evelyn and cynthia's home and the uh, auditorium or the conference room in which everyone gathers along with some mannequins 
to uh, watch uh, lectures about butterflies and moths. Mm-hmm. And uh, the interesting wrinkle of this relationship isn't that it's kind of a, a, a DS sort of uh, relationship. It's that we understand pretty quickly that Evelyn is scripting all of this yeah. for Cynthia. And the impression that uh, you're ultimately left with uh, during the course of the film, I feel, is that Cynthia would probably be perfectly content without all the uh, the trappings of their relationship, all the, the DS stuff. Um, and uh, Evelyn is very much into being punished and humiliated, but she's also in control of all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, throughout the course of the film, um, you know, it's there's not what one might call a ton of plot in this movie. No. Um, but there's there's a moment when uh, they call for uh, the carpenter um, who uh, is a woman who shows up and um, Evelyn wants for her birthday a bed that will open up. Uh, the mattress will swing open so she can kind of climb under the bed. Mm-hmm. And then the mattress goes back on top and uh, locks so that she is kind of trapped uh, beneath um, uh, Cynthia. And there's there's some face sitting. Uh, there's Cynthia sitting on Evelyn's face as she reads, you know, uh, books about butterflies. And it's, it's I, I mean, when I describe this, if I said this was a movie by Jess Franco... You would be like, oh, yeah, 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 of course. Why wouldn't she sit on her face and then read books about butterflies? Um, but that's what happens. And the the big crux of, of the film comes when there's, there's a birthday that comes along. And, and Cynthia, I think, does her level best to be the person Evelyn wants her to be. You know, strict and demanding and capable of issuing punishment. And like throughout the film, Evelyn gives her little notes like, you know, hey, when you're saying things to me, you know, be more sincere and and have some more emotion in it and things like that. And Cynthia is struggling to provide the woman she loves with what she wants. And in so doing, finds herself in a, a an unsatisfying relationship mm-hmm. where she is thrust into a role that she doesn't want to play. Like there's a, a great scene where um, she's just in her pajamas after she's hurt her back. And, uh, and she's a, it, it's a May December kind of romance. Like Cynthia is, a, is, a, I don't want to say much older woman, but she's definitely an older woman. She's a mature woman, probably, you know, forties ish. Mm-hmm. And, and Evelyn's, you know, much younger, I would say, you know, late twenties, maybe early thirties, if that, um, and, uh, but after Cynthia hurts her back and she's in her pajamas and Evelyn kind of complains and says, you know, there, I buy you all these nice clothes and you don't wear them. Mm -hmm. And so once again, we understand like, oh, Evelyn is actually more in charge of this relationship than Cynthia is, even though she keeps trying to push Cynthia into that role. Um, and, uh, Cynthia's response to that is, you know, half that stuff you need an instruction manual to get into. Mm -hmm. And I just want to be comfortable for a minute. And the, there's, uh, you know, drama along the way in the form of, 
um, Evelyn maybe not really cheating on Cynthia, but polishing someone else's boots. Yeah. And lying about it. And, and when she finally comes clean, you know, Cynthia's like, well, you might as well have gone all the way with her. You know, that the fact that you feel like this is something you have to hide indicates that it's a betrayal. And by the end of the film, uh, or, or during the course of this, like Evelyn senses, yes, Cynthia is growing more and more dissatisfied. And she tells Cynthia, like, we don't need this. I love you. You know, it, the thing that's important is you and, you know, how do I prove this to you? We, we don't need any of the other stuff. Um, oh, I left that an important detail. So when they can't get the bed, because apparently everyone in town uh, <laughs> is, is into this too, uh, they can't get the bed in time for Evelyn's birthday. So they move this, uh, this big chest into the bedroom mm-hmm. where um, she, Evelyn instructs Cynthia to lock her in at night. And, and we also realize like, oh, she's not actually sleeping in there. She's just, I don't know, savoring the experience, I suppose, yeah. while, while uh, Cynthia is asleep and wakes her up occasionally to let her out and, and whatnot. If she's got a mosquito bite, which was a pretty fun moment. <laughs> um, and it's like, Hey, can you let me back in there? But maybe this time don't tie my hands up so I can scratch if need be. Um, but, uh, but so the, the very end of the film, uh, or in the last act, they do kind of do away with all of the, the DS stuff. Um, and you see a montage where they're just kind of together and, and theoretically happy, but the movie ends exactly as it began, mm-hmm. uh, where we see Evelyn, you know, by this, this rippling brook and she returns home and we enact the same routine of, you know, I hear the panties that you did not clean. And there are moments throughout the film where, especially when uh, we're, we're kind of rising to the crescendo of, of the relationship and, and the problems within um, where um, Cynthia is, is trying to perform these lines that Evelyn has written for and just can't get through it. You know, she's, she just breaks down. She's just, I can't, I can't pretend to be this person anymore just so you're happy because it's making her miserable. But by the end of the film, we get the idea, or at least I, I did that. It's a cycle that's going to repeat. Yeah. You know, that it is just a constant state of Evelyn pushing Cynthia more and more until she breaks. And it's kind of a, a nice reversal of, of roles in the film, because even though Evelyn is casting herself in the role of the submissive, woman in their relationship she's the one that is in control of everything yeah and uh and then there's butterflies there's a lot of lectures about butterflies and and butterfly mating songs and they uh offer to pay at one point by selling off some butterflies mm-hmm. um it is you know aside from the i i don't know if i'm missing anything significant other than the basic filmic shorthand that butterflies represent of the, you know, the, the changing of a character and so forth. I think that's what's there. I think it's purely there to, to kind of subtly, depending on how versed you are on these things to symbolize the change of character, you know, the growth into something else. Yes. I'm onto you, Duke of Burgundy. You can't fool (laughs) me. Um, it's, 
describing the plot of this movie is like telling someone, telling a virgin about sex. Yeah. <laughs> you really have to experience it for yourself before you have any mastery of the subject. And yeah, Duke of Bur- Burgundy is a visually striking movie. There's a, a great moment, uh, sort of end of act two where the camera closes in on Cynthia's open legs Mm -hmm. uh, until it goes into darkness, and then a drug trip happens uh, involving a lot of butterflies. And and first of all, you sneaky motherfucker, (laughs) you try to Ben Wheatley me. Because Ben Wheatley is one of the producers on this film, and if Mm -hmm. I know nothing else, it's that uh, you love some Ben Wheatley. And it's hard to argue. The man's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I class, like, Peter Strickland to me in terms of, like, kind of modern up-and-coming British directors is right under Ben Wheatley. I think he's, you know, right there. But maybe doesn't necessarily... I think the they do genre stuff in a really interesting and kind of unique take on what they do. Like they, they they have like a visual style and a voice which is very distinctive to them. Like I know a Peter Strickland movie when I see it, regardless what the regardless what he's doing in his movie, whether it's rape revenge or you know like I said before like a kind of weird Italian off kilter horror or you know European sleazy sexploitation very much in the same way that Ben Wheatley does folk horror in a way which I've never seen done before or covers like if you watch his first movie <clears throat> Down Terrace um, where he covers this kind of this claustrophobic family aesthetic I think they, they have very unique voices uh, in British filmmaking and it's no surprise to me that that the, the, him helping uh, this movie get financed or whatnot makes perfect sense to me because I, I imagine that Wheatley is a big fan of Strickland and Strickland is a big fan of Wheatley. Yeah, I, I can just picture you uh, seeing Ben Wheatley's na- name, which, by the way, you have not mentioned to me before uh, in regards to Duke of Burgundy. And I, <laughs> I I know that in the back of your, your head, you were just whispering to yourself, softly, softly, catchy monkey. <laughs> Just keep Ben Wheatley under your cap. Let him see it in the credits. Um, I get it. I know. I know how you work, McLeish. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. I think I don't know. I don't know that Strickland's done enough yet that I, I could say just by watching the movie, I would know it was him. Um, I know that there is a particular aesthetic that he leans towards and he would certainly like you, you pull his name off of this movie and I could definitely see the DNA of Barbarian Sound Studio. Yeah. Um, up to and including the fact that there's just in the middle of the movie, there was this big centerpiece dream like sequence mm-hmm. um, that happens in, in both uh, Barbarian Sound Studio and, and Duke of Burgundy. Um, yeah, I think it's a fascinating movie. Um, it, it goes into the mechanics of a relationship in a really interesting way. Like all the trappings of the DS stuff and the fact that they're lesbians and there's all the, the kind of Euro sex, 
uh, 70s trappings of the film. Um, But at the end of the day, if you boil it down, it's just about a relationship between two people who are struggling to determine who is leading the relationship and whether the other person wants to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really, really a, a, a... a satisfying way, like more so than Barbarian Sound Studio. I actually like this movie more than that. Um, I still think that Strickland is a director more concerned with, with aesthetics than narrative. And I think maybe that's where he and Wheatley diverge. I think Wheatley, you know, enjoys his, his aesthetics and, and certainly, um, particularly in, in something like a, a field in England just has a field day with that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I would still argue that there is a stronger narrative in, in any given weekly film than there is in a Strickland film. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I think what, what Strickland does very well in this movie, I, I think what actually does very well in Barbarian Sound Studio is that if you are a fan of, if you are a fan of the bulk of Italian horror movies and the machine that churned out, you know, God knows how many. I mean, there was a time that in the kind of late 70s, for the majority of the 70s, heading definitely into the late 70s and early 80s, where Italian genre cinema dominated Europe. It was, you know, like every... It produced so many established names, household horror names and directors. And what I think, when you look at the movies, when you look at any any given Argento or Fulci movie, the movies always bent more on the aesthetic and not about the narrative. The movies were never about the narrative. Um, that's why movies like The Beyond are are still talked about today and that no one has a fucking clue what's going on at the end of that movie and why are their eyes white? Um, you know what I mean? It's, it's that idea of you can almost take a twist and turn into to something so strange and so fantastical that, you know, your audience will either go with it or they won't. And Barbarian Sound Studio is a manifestation of that. But our character who's working on the project becomes the project itself, becomes the film. At the end of that movie, he is very Videodrome-esque. He is, he is the new flesh. He is part of the, the DNA, the blueprint of the movie. And that's, you know, I mean, I think that's like hugely fascinating from from not only a, a kind of film standpoint and a genre standpoint, but I think aesthetically it all works very well together. I think the Duke of Burgundy is the natural progression of that. So you have all that all that attention to detail, aesthetically speaking, and the authenticity of something 70s. But I think, whereas you're saying maybe the narrative isn't that strong. I would argue that this movie is an hour and three quarters long with very little in the way of story, but completely engaging and engrossing for an hour and 45 minutes. At no point... I mean, that in itself is is pretty phenomenal. I, I don't know how many filmmakers could do that to keep your attention and keep you invested and embedded in a story for that length of time when, like you say, fundamentally, the movie really only has two central ideas. One of butterflies, which, unless you are knowledgeable in that, which I would argue the majority of people probably aren't, um, 
you know, is there as an aside to this relationship between two characters. And it kind of, on some level, it kind of reminded me of things like Blue is the Warmest Colour, um, where we get this idea of uh, relationship constructs and and basically the tools that they have and, you know, on characters who are in different places at different times or feel different things. And what I love about this movie is it breaks down the same scenes over and over again, but every time gives you a bit more of information behind it. So it's no accident in this movie that the, you know, the the opening scene and the final scene are the same, but we relive those set pieces because they are, they, they are set piece acted out scenes for these, these two women where, I will do this. You will say this. You, you know, it's, it's, it's this constant recital of the same things over and over again. But whereas at the very beginning of the movie, we just assume that she's a horrible, horrible boss um, who is so horribly treating this this poor girl that works for her. And then we get a bit more information and then a bit more. And then we find out that, well, actually, this is all being scripted. And actually, it's, it's her that's telling, you know... The, things to be pushed a little step further and all the rest and the more we get into it we we actually see the prep up to that her reading the cards her putting on her outfits and all the rest so we get to see a couple of seconds before and then a couple of seconds before that and we get the whole background and it changes the entire construct of what the relationship is built on that by the end of the movie or just before the end of the movie we've got to a point where things of you know our, our character can no longer go on with that and you know this capitulation of you know i don't need these things i don't, I don't need the you know i don't need the thing that really you know gets me off I, I can be normal you know all these things but ultimately it ends up back where it starts i think that's hugely fascinating but i think it's not at the the detriment of a really kind of powerful, well-acted love between two characters. There's a lot of moments of tenderness of the two of them lying in bed just just chatting to each other um, about how much they care for each other and um, the fact that one character would put herself through so much discomfort for the woman that she loves um, and then for that to be flipped. I, I imagine that Evelyn is not she's not happy about the the regular life and all the rest. So she's putting herself through a degree of discomfort towards the end of this movie to, to keep Cynthia on point. Um, but yeah, for it's that, just the, the cycle where n- neither of them are happy. Yeah. There or, is no, there is no happy medium between right. the two. Yeah. Like one of them is going to be happy while the other suffering. And it's just, it's just the role swapping. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's, not only infinitely fascinating and it, we are using words like that which I think on some level Peter Strickland movies can be looked at as you know purely from an analytical point of view you can pick out the, 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 the facts the points maybe he approaches filmmaking like that but there's a warmth to this movie which Barbarian Sound Studio does not have Barbarian Sound Studio is a very clinical psychological nightmare um, where this, it really is. Yeah, like, no, you're right. Yeah, like yeah. when when all of a sudden, a uh, Gilderoy is speaking in Italian, and we're reliving scenes from before, but he's perpetrating horrible acts, and you, you know, you are like, what the fuck have I? You know, has this jumped ahead? What has happened? Um, 
very funny story. I had an illegal copy of Barbarian Sound Studio, which didn't have subtitles. So the first time I watched it, I didn't have any of the Italian subtitles. So I had not a fucking clue what the characters were saying. Oh, that's that's rough. That's rough um, going. Oh my god! You like talk about head fuck? I had not a clue what was going on. But um, I think I, th- I think I know where this is going. Um, but the reason I picked the movie is I think I genuinely like I say it made it made my top five. I think it came in at number three um, in my top five movies last year because I thought. It ticked every box for me. I think it's beautifully shot. I think um, the set design's wonderful. I think the score is great. I think the cinematography is great. I think the acting is of such a high standard between these two characters. I think it pulls off the aesthetic and feel of a sexploitation movie without actually giving you any of what you expect from a sexploitation movie. It gives you no nudity at all. But whilst watching this movie, it feels incredibly erotic. It yeah. feels like taboo and it feels naughty and it feels a bit, you know, you know, you know, like something you should be watching with an eye over your shoulder to make sure that no one walks in the door. But there's nothing in this movie at all which, you know, which is... Um, it's all implied. It's, everything's implied. And, yeah, there are scenes where you see a character's head buried in the lap of another of another character or someone sitting on it, but that character's wearing underwear. Right, but never and, nude, yeah. Yeah, never nude. And I think that's, once again, that's a... I think that's an infinitely fascinating thing to do, and I know, I'm very much aware that fascinating, like you when you were describing the movie, doesn't necessarily... is an experience. I, I don't think I've ever seen any movie ever that has done what this movie does and the way it's done it. I think it's wholly unique. Um, I uh, yeah, I totally agree. I, yeah, I think it's a, it's a freaking wonderful movie. Yeah, and, and, you know, fascinating is almost, like, interesting where people are like, well, that, that's a polite way of saying that you didn't like it. Um, that's not the case. I mean, I think for you and I who have seen just a ton of movies being kind of enraptured by a film for what it's doing... Yeah. Uh, and being truly fascinated. Oh, by the way, fascination is Gene Rollin film. Um, <laughs> a little. Also, Monica Swin is in this. Yes. Uh, who was in Female Vampire, uh, The Demoniacs, Demoniacs. Uh, but anyway, some Jess Franco stuff. And uh, so, yeah, if you wanted, if there was any question that Strickland was heavily influenced by, you know, these films. The fact that he cast a lead actress from them in in his film, even a a very small role. He's, uh, he, I saw like him on the special features on the the Blu-ray disc, and there's an interview with him, and he was asked originally he was he was supposed to do a remake of uh, I think it was a Franco movie actually uh, for Mondo Macab, I think is the company. Um, they're like a like a, a like a distribution company or or, or whatnot, um, and that's what he was supposed to do. And while he was getting set up to do that, he ultimately wrote a script which became the Duke of Burgundy. That makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. So yeah, so he kind of kind of moved away from the remake idea and ended up settling on something for him. Self, but it was all heavily influenced, and the two names that you mentioned, the two directors, are exactly what he was 
that that was his influences moving into the project. So I think the fact that that comes across to you watching it, it, it means you know he, he's nailed that. Oh, for sure. Like I don't want to sound like I'm in any way dismissive of this movie because it is it's gorgeous to look at. It sounds great. Like you said, the the performances are amazing. There is this erotic charge that runs through it, even though it is not purely erotic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not like Red Tube. Uh, <laughs> by the way, Red Tube official porn site of Duck and a Boat Come Correct. Um, so I'm just looking for some sponsors, man. Um, but you know that. Yeah, I mean, it's unlike any movie. Like it, it borrows from a style of movie without being exactly that. Mm. And it's it's a wholly original thing. It is, you know, like you said, for an hour and forty minutes, there's not a lot of story going on. Um, you know, there's enough to keep things interesting, and things happen in the movie. I don't mean to suggest that they don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's not a moment where you know your eye and your watch or anything it's it, it's a captivating film it's very it's very lyrical and it, it's beautiful to look at and it, it's it's intellectually very interesting to pick apart um and yeah i mean i i think that i i still hold that even though you're right that the construction of the movie does give you little bits of information that you didn't have before. Like it builds on the viewer's knowledge as you go through the film until you have, you know, the ultimate realization of the end of the film, which is like, Oh yeah, this is just not a healthy relationship at the end of the day. And it's not because of people getting peed on and whatnot. That's not strangely, not the unhealthy part. Um, it's the fact that, that neither of them can be their true selves and Mm -hmm. satisfy the other one. Um, and in that way, it's very sad. Uh, one might, (laughs) One might uh, even reference uh, the accidental tourist uh, in this scenario <laughs> where, you know, uh, Macon Leary says, maybe love isn't enough. Maybe it's about the person you are uh, with the other person that matters. And I think that that strangely applies to this film um, that you have both of these characters uh, are both of the women in the film, not just the characters, but um, are, are playing a role that can't ever be the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, there, there's something, there's something elegant about that. There, there's a simplicity to the movie that is not simple in the way that, you know, the guy who hangs out by the grocery store and doesn't have a job is simple. Um, (laughs) it is, it is simple in a very succinct way. And, you know, I, like I said, I still, I still think that Strickland, um, without the benefit of uh, the simplicity of something like the Duke of Burgundy, which I, I do think is a superior film actually to Barbarian Sound Studio. I would agree with that. I I Uh, think it's a better movie. Um, but I still think that he... His experimentation is is more with style than it is with narrative. I wish he would apply some of his sense of its aesthetics to the way he's telling the story. Um, even though he has some tricks up his sleeve here that he did in Barbarian, but um, I still think he is like a, one movie away from doing something that is going to make me the true believer you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do, I, I think that he's an amazing director and, and certainly a guy worth watching. 
Um, and in this movie in particular, like even if you don't give a shit about Strickland or Barbarian Sound Studio or Lesbians or Lepidoptery, <laughs> if you don't care about any of that stuff, you should still kind of see the Duke of Burgundy because it is such a, it, it's just an experience unlike anything you're going to get from another movie. You know, uh, especially uh, like don't go into it expecting that you're going to have your hand down your pants for this movie. No. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe that'll get you there, but it, that's not really what this movie is doing, even though it has all the, you know, I keep saying trappings, but that's what it is. It's all the, mm -hmm. the tropes of that, that kind of subgenre. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a remarkable achievement. There is no getting around that. And, um, there is something though that I think is more clinical than emotional about his style of filmmaking to me. Mm -hmm. Um, even though there is more emotion in this and that's what I respond to because I'm a simple American Duncan. <laughs> and if you show me like a puppy, uh, or, or, or perhaps like a kitten wearing a funny hat, uh, then my heart soars. And, uh, you know, I, I think that Strickland is for, for better or worse, Strickland is in the business of doing movies that you've never seen before. And sometimes that can be a bit alienating to a viewer. Yeah. Um, but, but at the end of the day, like I said, I, I still, I, I think he's almost there at the Wheatley level. He's just not quite there yet. Uh, but I hope he gets there cause I'm all in favor of having a second Ben Wheatley. Um, <laughs> And we we Lorem? I don't know. We'll get there. Um, but yeah, I, so at the end of the day, I really, really, really like the Duke of Burgundy. Um, I don't quite love it, but that's okay. You know, like I, I still, this is a movie that I now I bought because I know I'm going to go back and watch it again. Um, I initially rented it on the Amazons. So I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that in the, in the UK. <laughs> Um, but it's a great, a great venue to, to rent movies. And, um, so, uh, I, but I rented it on Amazon and then realized it was on Netflix. I was like, son of a bitch. So, so I watched it on Netflix and then I was like, you know what? I just need to buy this. And so that's what I did. And, uh, I now have my own copy of this movie. I love it. Um, what do I love it? I don't know. Like See, I go back yeah. and forth. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're like me with the the accidental tourist. Yeah, and, uh, I, I, I I like like when I when I started recording with you, I think more of the statement was I kind of love it, and then I said, well, I kind of hate it as well. And I don't think you kind of hate it, but I think no, we're not that. I, I don't kind of hate the movie. I think we are both in very similar positions in that our base instinct is to love the movie, but there are there is something which is just kind of keeping us back from that. And in the case of your one, you're saying that it still just doesn't feel like it's quite there yet. And, you know, there's one specific thing about the, your movie to me where I'm like, it's, yeah, it's the thing that stops me from wholly committing my love, you know, de declaring my love in front of a live studio audience um, towards a movie well, or in front of a priest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me, I believe, you know, father Ryan, um, <laughs> Duncan, get, get ready. All right. So it feels like we're discussing the two movies. So let's jump into this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think these are, these are wildly different films. Like one is a very traditional Hollywood kind of movie and that's Duke of Burgundy, obviously. Um, <laughs> no. So the, the accidental tourist, you know, it's a, a, a mid ish eighties 
Lawrence Kasdan movie starring actors that you know, you love them. Duncan, they're going to show up and they're going to give you a good time. Um, and, you know, I think I, I, I think there's a, a, a genuine solemnity to the accidental tourist, uh, especially in regards to the, the death of a child. I think it it happens to dance very uh, expertly around being too tragic or too funny um, or even too quirky, even though that, you know, the movie is definitely a quirky film. But I think it, it manages to juggle all these these elements that could feel like a bad mix of ingredients together in a really satisfying way. And I don't disagree with you. I mean, I do have my issues with the end of Accidental Tourist. It's just that everything else about it is so great that I don't I don't get to um I don't have an adjective for this, so I just call it Duncanish. Um <laughs> so, I don't think there's a word in the English language actually that quite fits, but that works for me. Um, yeah, it does. It doesn't bother me to the point where, um, like, it diminishes my love of the film. Be and but this is also a movie that came along when I was discovering that I love movies. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, this movie came out when I was what, like, thirteen, fourteen, something like that, and I saw it a bunch of times when I was a teenager. And it really informed a lot of my sensibilities about how to tell a love story in a, in a different way and, and not have it just be, you know, this guy's crazy and this girl can't handle it. You know, those kind of romantic comedies that just like I can appreciate them on a comedic level, but there's nothing romantic about them to me. They're, they're just going they're kind of paint by number stories. And I don't think accidental tourist is as paint by numbers as something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it leads to an ultimate conclusion because the character of Macon Leary, like, it's not the kind of movie that's going to leave him in a place where he's all alone. Like, he's left his wife. Gina Davis won't have him back. His kid's dead. He's got nothing except his dog. And then he goes home. You know, like, that's not the end of a movie like The Accidental Tourist. Um, although it'd be kind of rocking if it was. Um, but so I love that. I, I love that movie for a number of reasons. And a lot of them are very personal reasons. Um, and a lot of them are Gina Davis and (laughs) with Duke of Burgundy, here's, here's the problem I have, uh, the struggle I have Duncan is that Duke of Burgundy truly is a movie that is unlike, it's unlike anything I've seen except for the things that it's trying to be like, Mm -hmm. but it's way better than any of those. You know, it's because the, like Jess Franco and Gene Rollin films are, I mean, they're fine. They're, they're kind of kitschy and, and they're, you know, they, both of those directors certainly have a nice eye for the, the, the female form and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the fact that you cast an older woman who doesn't have the, uh, the rock hard body of, uh, a cocaine fueled groupie. <laughs> <laughs> like some of the the Gene Rollins stuff, um, I think that's really interesting. And you know, again, interesting is not code for I'm just trying to satisfy you, Duncan. It's it like it really is interesting. <laughs> it, it and and so my problem is that I really really enjoy everything about Duke of Burgundy, and yet I don't know that 
I, I, I love the movie the way I feel like I should almost like as a film lover, I almost feel mm-hmm. like I should like the movie more than I do. And I like it a ton, but I, I don't know. Like I, would I have put it on my top five of last year? Probably not. Um, but I would still tell anyone that could sit through a movie like this and not just giggle at all the peeing, which I did. I was like, <laughs> <"Sees> <laughs> uh, but <laughs> she's doing it again. Um, but I, yeah, I would still totally recommend this movie to anybody. You know, I would say like, if, if you want to see something that to anyone who's a cinephile, I would say like the accidental tourist, I would recommend to anybody regardless of age or number of limbs or whatever criteria you, you want to use. Like there's nothing about the acts unless it was just somebody that had recently lost a child. That's kind of mean. Like watch the XL tourist. It's very funny. <laughs> you know, like, you know about Brian. Why did you show me this movie? Oh, I forgot your kid got shot. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a real jerk move. That's the point I'm making. Duncan. So, um, I don't know. Help me out here. Cause I, I, I kind of like the, the home team advantage is with accidental tourist, but that's a very down the middle kind of movie. And I generally like things that are different and Duke of Burgundy is nothing if not different. So why don't I like it more? Duncan? <laughs> why are, why don't I love it the way you love it? What is wrong with me? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I can totally see where you're coming from. Like, did did I did I like the accidental tourist as much as I like the Duke of Burgundy? No, that's like that's a given. No, but did I enjoy it? Yes, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was like I say the, the minor blip, which I'm holding against it aside. I thought I didn't put a foot wrong anywhere else. I think um, it's again very well acted, very well shot. Quite liked the story. I thought the story was really quirky. I thought the the, the humor did shine through it. Um, I thought the casting was great. I I will opt for the Duke of Burgundy. And I think it's more just to do with maybe maybe it's more just to do with the movies that I grew up watching. I I, I you know fine well I'm a, a huge like a massive lover of like European cinema and European cinema style and Italian cinema particularly and Strickland feels to me almost like the you know, if if that renaissance of filmmaking that sprung up um in the seventies with directors like Argento and and Filci and Martino and Bava happened in twenty sixteen I imagine that Strickland would be held in the same regards as that. He, he has that feel to his movie, uh, to his movies, which I know exactly where you're coming from. It, it, it can at times feel like he maybe is spending too much time making sure that everything looks right, and maybe maybe his eyes not maybe focused as well as it should be on you know exact narrative or. Or plot, or what his actors and actresses are doing, um, and the Duke of Burgundy. Though I don't think I think everything flows in that movie so well that it's it's not something that I, I mean I, I I think it all works perfect. So from my point of view, I, 
I know what you're saying. I just, I just don't agree with it. Ultimately, <laughs> like I, I know you're, I, I know exactly. Like it's, I know exactly the points you're coming in on. I, I just personally think that they fit perfectly within the construct of the, of, of the movie. Uh, I, I don't feel that there's anything lacking from the Duke of Burgundy. I think it's a complete. I think it's like at the moment it's his best film. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, it's perfect because of that. However, that's not. Like it's kind of like the shoes on the other foot uh, this week compared to the the last show, and that is not about what is the better movie. Because if we come, to, if we if we strip down all the individual elements, I personally don't think there's a contest between these two. I think the Duke of Burgundy is shot better. Like I think the the act, I would go as far as to say I think it's acted better as well, and that's because oh, don't get. I think it's played. I think it's played differently, though, and I think that's why it's. I think you know. I mean, we and and the accidental tourist people are playing quirky roles, like they're playing caricatures of of people that have neuroses, whereas the Duke of Burgundy, these two characters feel legitimately one hundred percent real, um, and they are kind of grounded more in a reality in that there are people that have those sexual practices um, that I think that's handled better and you know scoring all the rest but that's not what we're here to do we're here to ultimately look at the picks we pick for each other and gauge them against the 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 theme for the show which was romance and what's the better romance movie um, by his very definition Hollywood kind of sets the standards by what all romance movies should be based on because that's kind of the, the kind of paradigm for that comes from Hollywood and from that point of view your movie fits the brief better Duncan did you watch the Duke of Burgundy because that movie is all about romance as well it is all about romance but it's it's not the same I I mean you're right but we're, we're talking about romance as the subgenre I think that Hollywood romance is its own thing I, I think that you can qualify. I, I think there are two distinct, uh, like, I don't think Duke of Burgundy disqualifies or, or even gets a, a knock against it right, well, because of way. genre. Right. Well, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. And the Duke of Burgundy, even though the characters love each other, they'll never be happy. That's true. But, right. But, and, and, <laughs> and the, the, yeah, the, the, so they're in, a doomed relationship which will go on forever. Really. Until one wins out and then another one will be miserable forever. Right, but making and, Leary kills Muriel Pritchett. I mean, I'm talking about the book, obviously. Uh, kills her? Murders her in her sleep, yes. Um, no, of course not. See, I want to read this book now. <laughs> yeah, right. The book's really different, Duncan. In fact, he pees on her a lot, too. Um <laughs> I don't know what's truth and lies now. You are the father of lies. <laughs> uh, Sitting on your throne of deceit. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I think... Like, the, 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 reason, the reason I put... The, the Duke of Burgundy is my sort of romance movie. And that yeah. should surprise no one that listens to this show. Um... I think if a listener watched both of these movies, they're almost in in all the shows we've done. They're almost no better 
films to represent our sensibilities. <laughs> it really is true. It's like, this is what Bo thinks of romance. And it's quirky Gina Davis and a dog that, you know, is, is really cute. And then they think she should be peed on. And then, yeah, and then Duncan, not, not just the pee. Um, I mean, a lot of it's the pee, but, <laughs> but it's the fact that it's this, it's this very European art house kind of film. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I really enjoy that too. And like, I feel like I'm making your argument now, which was my plan. <laughs> it wasn't. You gave me the old dipsy do. I've been Cynthia'd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, as much as I love Excellent Tourist, and I do, I, you know, I think that this is a case where Duke of Burgundy, I do think it's a better movie mm-hmm. at the end of the day because it's just trying to do so much more. It's just playing by different rules. Than Accidental Tourist is. Accidental Tourist plays it safe all through the film, even though it's dealing with... It's doing everything really well and confidently, because Lawrence Kasdan is a good writer and director. Yeah. It's just not doing more than that. You know, I just happen to really like the things it's doing. I like like the subject matter, I like the characters, and blah, blah, blah. All the stuff we've talked about. Um, I think Duke of Burgundy is a bolder movie. I think it's, it is more intellectually satisfying to me as a movie, even with my, not even concerns or problems. It's just like, like the thing that Duke of Burgundy leaves me with, and and like when I'm watching the movie, I'm not thinking about any of this. I'm just enjoying the movie. It's when I come away from it where I'm like, you know what? Strickland is like a half step away from doing a movie that I will, I, I will climb to the rooftops and hold over my head like Lloyd Dobler <laughs> and scream that people need to watch this movie now, now, now. Um, you know, Duke of Burgundy isn't quite that. Like, like I'm holding Duke of Burgundy to a higher standard than Actional Tourist because I think at the end of the day, Peter Strickland is going to do a movie like that. And, or, or, or he's going to do the movie that lands on me the way that like barbarian sound studio did for you because of your love of giallo. Yeah. Like, like if he ever does like his take on the movie, silver bullet, (laughs) Strickland, silver bullet, Strickland, silver bullet. And I'm all for it because I want to see what the guy does next every time. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just that the subject matter, not subject matter, but the aesthetic style that he's going for those kind of movies, I, and maybe this is the root of my problem. All right, I think I got it. I think that <laughs> I think the issue that I've got with 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 the Duke of Burgundy is that it the source material it's referencing or that style of filmmaking I don't hold in very high regard. Right. You know, I think that that kind of you know at one time it was referred to as Euro sleeves, mm-hmm. um, and. The fact that he's elevated that material, like, I wish he had directed at the same time as, as uh, Jess Franco did, because I could see where Strickland did the, the movie that legitimized that genre. Right. You know? Um, but all these are not complaints about the movie. It's just about the fact that I think Strickland isn't quite at his potential. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Duke of Burgundy isn't an extraordinary film to watch. And, and so 
I vote Duncan <laughs> against my own pick. Because <laughs> I've been cynthia by a, uh, a catchy monkey. Um, yeah, see, when you listen back to this, you'll realize that how I made you change your vote was by saying that The Duke of Burgundy wasn't a romance film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I no, I think it it very much is. I, yeah. And I, I think it just across the board, like, I love Accidental Tourist, and I think everyone should. If you've never seen The Accidental Tourist, I think you should. You definitely should, yeah. Um, I think Duke of Burgundy is one of those movies that we're probably going to take some shit for because we're... <laughs> Because we are, uh, something that never happens in the film. We're blowing this movie pretty hard. Um, <laughs> the but, reason it's not, there's no guys in the movie, but yeah, there's not a one. And in, in fact, it's just women and mannequins. And, yeah. uh, by the way, that's one of the weirder moments. Like, that was a, like, the, all right. The fact that there is a credit for the perfume in Duke of Burgundy almost gives it the win. And the fact that there's other stuff that happens after that. Is pretty great. You're coming in waves to you. Like you're, you're, like, you're just about to finish your train of thought and then another thing drops. You know, there's fucking mannequins in this movie and the perfume has a credit. Yeah. There's all this weird stuff. Like it, it's such a rich viewing experience. That's the, that's the ultimate point, Duncan. Is that Duke of Burgundy is a rich viewing experience. Not that Exile Tourist is not, but it is. Uh, it, it is more imaginative. It is. It is coloring outside the lines, and um, it, it it's referencing a subgenre that maybe I don't necessarily think is worth Strickland's time in a weird way. <laughs> I totally agree. But <laughs> to me, after after Barbarian Sim Studio, why he decided to do this? I mean, once you know the backstory of him being approached to remake something within that genre, and then him going off, I can see why you can see him being given this thing, saying, you know, no, if I'm going to do this, I want to do this genre my style, and then that's what you get. But yeah. I totally agree with you. After Barbarian Sim Studio, why someone's natural impulse? Could be let's remake a movie from the you know seventies exploitation European cinema, and we'll get Peter Strickland to direct that because he did that movie which kind of felt seventies that dealt with Jallo. As as a loose thing to me, there are other directors that can do that. It's not the first name that would spring to mind. And if I was Strickland, I don't know if that would necessarily grab me as something. Yeah, well, I want to remake one of these movies. So it seems like a weird step. But I think the key word you, you mentioned is the fact that he has managed to elevate and almost legitimise something which is easily dismissed in cinema, a time period and a section of movies which is only really held within a like a grubby core. Um, yeah. And I think the fact that all our discussion is revolving around Duke of Burgundy because accidental tourists, like I said, it's a very down the middle kind of kind of movie, and that's not to be um, dismissive of it. But you know, it it is what it is. Like when you see that movie, it's not like you're going to come away puzzled. Um, whereas Duke of Burgundy, I think you know the fact that we're spending this much time trying to pick it apart and figure out what makes this movie tick and why Peter Strickland would do it, and the fact that he did it so well is just as puzzling. Um. Yeah, I think I I think it I think it wins this episode. Now you are aware 
that I'm not going to disagree with you. <laughs> um, I'm aware that, of that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're aware of that. I'm not going to do that. Um, by you saying that, I, by default, win this season. You, yeah, you do. Without playing the winner beast, mind you, which is just uh, a, an icicle in the heart. Um, because we don't have knives in America. We're very peace-loving people. We have to wait for winter and icicles. Um, yeah, no, I understand that. And I'm not, I'm not happy about it. Um, uh, you know, my revenge, Duncan. <laughs> Why does it have to be revenge? Why can't it be my determination? Because, uh, <laughs> lives will be lost and determination doesn't end in murder. Um, well, I guess sometimes it does. I'm determined to seek my revenge. How about that? Um, <laughs> So, you know, uh, you will not know the time nor the coming, <laughs> but, uh, you should be afraid. Be very afraid. Uh, line spoken by Gina Davis in the fly, who by the way is in the actual tours, which is a fine film. Um, I, my, my only goal though, is, as it, as it currently stands, as it currently stands though, um, in terms of the season finale episode, you're one up on me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't know. know. That's (laughs) that's cold comfort. Like you know the best shitty movies. (laughs) See if we can get a show that's half as good as the last one. See if we can get like a a, like on the levels of ridiculous as Blood Feast and and Winter Beast. Then that show's gonna be a blast to record. Yeah, it's gonna be fun regardless. I I think we're gonna have a good time with it. And I'm playing for pride now. Like obviously, I can't win, but much like Rocky. Uh, or Creed, either one. Um, uh, Rocky. Yeah. Well, let's <laughs> let's stick with Rocky then. I don't want to upset you during your time of victory, Duncan. God forbid anyone should rain on Duncan's parade. Oh, holy shit! Uh, breaking news, totally unrelated to the podcast. Ted Cruz has dropped out of the presidential campaign, leaving only uh, Senator Kasich, who's not. Anywhere near it, and Trump, who will be the Republican presidential candidate. <laughs> well, Duncan, this this is actually good news because uh, to seek my revenge, obviously, I have to go to Scotland, and there is no better time to leave this country than right now. <laughs> well, you know that means a Democrat's getting in. Um, you know, you would like to think so, Duncan, but uh, I don't know if you've rubbed elbows with a lot of Americans. Uh, I, I have, but I've also seen the the Poland demographics, and Trump may do well with a certain demographic. It doesn't do well with the majority in your country, though. This is true. This is true. As much as I like to, you know, gently rib my home country, <laughs> um, and also uh, not so gently sometimes because there's some dumb shit that comes out of the U.S. But um, yeah, I I like to believe there is not a scenario in which this country would elect Donald Trump to anything. Um, you know, and, and he's not the kind of guy that's ever going to run for like the house of representatives or the Senate or anything mm-hmm. because, you know, he, he, he can't be that diminished. You know, yeah. he's, it's either president or king of the world. Those are the two jobs <laughs> that he's going to campaign for and nothing else. Um, uh, but, uh yeah, so we've got one episode left. Uh plan for pride. Um and uh and I I feel pretty strongly that I'm I'm 
I'm going to win that. Uh, <laughs> and if I don't, then uh, this will be the last episode. <laughs> no, I, it is now up to me to to get the trophy. And I, I got to tell you, there is some comfort to be taken from buying the trophy for your victory. Because oh, it will be... I I kind of already looked. Because, uh, not to sound defeatist, but I was thinking like, okay, if, if I don't end up winning the season, you had a winter beast in your pocket, so, you know, things were not looking great. So, what is the most ridiculous trophy oh, fuck, we can boy. get for Duncan? And I think I may have it. <laughs> so, enjoy your victory and inevitable ridiculous piece of... Uh, <laughs> decoration that will come with with the win oh goody <laughs> and, and in the meantime I will I will sharpen my cinematic knife for, for uh, season 3 but before we get there Duncan we got we got uh, an episode of Duncan Bo come incorrect coming in a fortnight mm-hmm. and we've got uh, our community viewing of the winter beast which I can't wait for it's it's always always an amazing experience um, and in between now and then, what else you got, uh, to say for yourself? This <laughs> son of a bitch. Um, uh, currently working on the next Baz V Horror episode. Uh, it's the next chapter in our Halloween retrospective. We'll be looking at Halloween part four, five, and six, or as I like to call it, shit, shit, and shit. Um, I don't like any of those movies, like, at all. And it's funny, I just like I, people keep. I've I've I mentioned it on the show for for years now. I've been saying I only really like three movies in that franchise, and it's the first three. And people are like, no, 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 the fourth one's all right. And for some reason, I started to believe people, and I sat down and watched that fourth movie, and it's hot garbage. Um, only only to be outdone by parts five. And I've not sat down to watch part six, but if memory serves, I think that movie is the worst in the franchise, even more worse than the Buster Rhymes one. So, um, yeah, so there, there's a whole lot of garbage on the back end of that series. Um, and you guys are even doing the, uh, zombies, the zombie yeah. films. And I think those are atrocious as well. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, when I saw the, the original Rob Zombie remake, in the cinema, I came out like actually fairly optimistic, you know, feeling like he'd done a fairly good job, and that has changed almost year on year since. Um, and I've seen the movie twice since seeing it in the cinema, and they've been wildly different opinions. Um, so I don't know what it was about that one cinema visit that made me think that movie was actually a good movie when it's clearly fucking not. So yeah. Um, so, so I'm, I'm currently doing that just now and doing a lot of prep into Chronicle Season 2, which will be coming in July. So this show might, depending on how things work, this show might be coming back or there or thereabouts when Chronicle's kicking off. So Yeah, it, in, in the neighborhood of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so um, I'm working on that just now. The, the sub-genre for it has not been officially announced but it will be announced in the next week or so and then the movie list will be coming out just after that and then the the hard graft of uh, watching the movies researching, prepping, writing and recording will be following that afterwards so I'm, I'm looking forward to that, I, I thoroughly enjoyed 
season one um, and looking forward to coming back to doing a bit of season two. So uh, what about yourself? What, what have you got coming up? Um, first of all, let me just say Chronicle is an amazing show. Oh, thank uh, you. I'm, I'm really looking forward to season two. And I, I mean, this it's not because I even know you. I mean, knowing you actually makes the show worse, but... Uh, <laughs> It's such a good show. I can even overlook the fact that you're doing it. Uh, no, no, no. It's a, it's an incredible uh, piece of work, and and I've I really really enjoy uh, Chronicle. I'm looking forward to season two. I I hope the subgenre is uh, uh, the accidental tourist. Um, <laughs> just every episode is an examination of another scene. It's really what I, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers for. Even though it's European horror, and I know that. Technically, Axel Duras doesn't count, but I think William Hurt may have spent some time in England. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be doing um, uh, Hero Hero Go Show is uh, rocketing through season one. Um, the next episode, uh, when this airs, Juan will be available and you'll be about 72 hours away from phone with Ricky Martin. Oh, uh, nice. Ricky Martin, Jesus Christ, Ricky Morgan. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. <laughs> uh, I am so sorry, Ricky. Please forgive me. Uh, Ricky, Ricky Morgan of Hail Me Power Hour uh, is going to be uh, discussing the the um, Korean film Phone with me, mm. and and hilarity ensued. Um, there's a lot a lot of talk about uh, <laughs> the little girl in that movie, um, as, as well deserved. It is. It, it's a fantastic film. Um, beyond that, uh, if you check out the Shotcast, which is the video game podcast that we do on a biweekly basis, and uh, and that's really it. Like uh, I've, I've, you know, once this wraps up and uh, Hero Hero Go Show wraps up, um, I I plan to actually take a breath and uh and get in touch with my feelings maybe do some meditation more importantly uh i start assembling the list of, of films that are unstoppable for season uh three god we're we'll be doing season three of duncan and Bo come correct that's amazing yeah uh, so i was surprised when we recorded episode two <laughs> it's yeah i mean it really strains uh the relationship that's for sure um, you know, I've got, fortunately though, I got, uh, a Duncan McLeish doll. <laughs> and after we wrap up tonight, I'm just going to stab the ever living shit out of it. Uh, <laughs> so if you feel a pain in say your pancreas or spleen area, that is just the voodoo at work. Pay no attention. Um, <laughs> So, uh, and by the way, Duncan, thanks for staying up late. Listeners don't know this, but you were staying up. Uh, it's like 400 o'clock over there or however late it's, it gets. It's two in the morning. It's yeah. So that's pretty late. So, um, but thanks for staying up and, and, and keeping us on schedule for not just myself and my own, uh, selfish needs, but, uh, but for the listeners as well. Um, and and I think this is, dare I say it, a fantastic episode that they will have listened to. Um, Hopefully they agree. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, and if not, fuck them. <laughs> you know what would be a good way to show that appreciation? 
It's feedback on iTunes. <laughs> that would be great. Yes, if you go to iTunes, I almost forgot about all the, the social stuff, and, and this is actually terribly important. The way that iTunes does their rankings is based on reviews. As as mm-hmm. Duncan points out, if you listen to any of his shows, and and rightly added it to this one as well because i'm stupid (laughs) so um but yeah leave us a rating and uh drop us a line let us know what you think of the show we we genuinely appreciate it and if you uh are enjoying the show and enjoying these conversations and know someone who might uh as well or just someone that uh you feel like doesn't know nothing about movies and maybe this would help them then uh you know point them this way it would be appreciated um anything else Duncan? before we get out of here uh, no, just thanks very much again for everyone's support. It's great to see people interacting with their uh, posts, especially on the, the the shows and voicing opinions whether or not you think we got it right. Um, even though we think we've got it right, it's always great to hear what you would do if you were in our position. Um, and yeah, can't wait to come incorrect in two weeks' time. Yep, next time. Duncan and Bo come incorrect. The battle of of the terrible movies. If you don't watch, don't watch. If you don't listen to any other podcast this year, make it that one because it's going to be uh, Duncan and I doing battle armed with nothing but poo. <laughs> Until next time, thank you very much and good night. Bye, everyone. No news. Giving things